Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all the separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting every facet of our everyday lives. On today's show, I speak with Margaret Curnow from Gender Resist Education. We will explore how far down the rabbit hole transgender ideology is within our schools and what resources are available to parents who have concerns. My second guest is Martin Lankford, the Democracy New Zealand candidate for my home electorate of Napier. We will talk about the local recovery or lack thereof and what inspires someone to put themselves out there and stand in an election. Marty will also be back with our roundup of legacy media stories of the week and I will finish things off with the woke word of the week. But this week we've had a plethora of wonderful messages to our Reality Check Radio inbox. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio if you want to email or text us on 2057 and I thought I would share some of this with you today. First up, regard to your Die Landy interview, I am a cis white male and proud of it. I also love my country, great to hear such wonderful Māori women like Die Landy with a sense of humour and also a deep understanding of what is happening in our country right now. I had no idea a Māori women's group organised Posey Parker, good on them. Cheers from David, a firm RCR fan. Thanks David, really appreciate it. 
Just coming off the text machine, we'd love to hear more of Maureen Marty on this panel. That's the political panel. Uh, you will get more of both of us from time to time. We will alternate in and out on uh, the political roundup on a Friday. So thank you for that. Hi, Marie. Just FYI, my daughter went for counselling at a transgender clinic in Green Lane. Her counsellor was transgender. How can this be unbiased counselling? This movement is so dangerous for our young people, ruining so many lives, so sad and actually unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, it is unbelievable. And my heart goes out to you as a parent because it is so difficult, isn't it? You know, navigating all of this. And I really do hope that your daughter is able to get some unbiased counselling and you know what you've always got uh, some support here and some great content here with us at RCR so thank you very much for sharing that. Some really inter interesting interviews this week. Thanks. Love Marie's interview with Di Landy. She's so refreshing, blunt and to the point. It's really good to hear some honest breakdown of the budget too. Keep it up. Thanks so much. Greatly appreciated. From John. My God, you guys deserve an international award for the, um, for the Marie Busky and Diane Landy interview. Thanks, John. All the content I've heard has been off the planet. I feel so blessed that RCR is out in our community now. Thank you all for the blessings and may long you reign. I look, we do appreciate it, John. And talking to Di has been utterly incredible. And I hope to get her back, actually. She is just amazing. Uh, this is from Ingrid. Love your shows. Thank you so much. You're informed, courteous, enthusiastic about your topics and relate warmly to the interviewed. I write because I'm disappointed in Dr. Naomi's wolf view on why Israel succumbed so easily to the jab mandates since you expressed an interest in why. I venture a different view. First, let me say that I'm a fifth generation Kiwi on my dad's side and my mother is Jewish. I have Israeli cousins and I have visited Israel regularly in the last few years. As you know, Naomi was until recently a left-wing liberal. While her views on many things have changed to a conservative stance, it seems that her attitude to Israel has not. To typify Palestinian cities as open-air prisons is deeply disturbing. Israelis are not injured into prison life or into the plight of some Palestinians. In some random observations from a trip in April 2023, regular friendly contact between Israeli Arabs and Jews, I witnessed this with my own eyes numerous times. A high proportion of pharmacists in Israel are Arab and my cousin's GP is Arab. A great percentage of Israeli Arabs than Jews are training to be GPs. Terror terrorist attacks are a weekly occurrence in Israel and many of them are deadly. Yes, there's a violent segment of Arabs. Bedouins in the south are extending their settlements illegally and the government puts sewage and other services in. I've several cousins at all are left wing and dislike Netanyahu, but would also dispute Naomi's view of things. The truer answer is outlined in a very long interview with Alison McDowell in March 2021. Her website is The Wrench and the Gears. She's not Jewish. It's been a while since I listened to it, so I cannot summarise the four hours, but I can describe what I remember. Alison has a background in art history and using diagrams to map the provenance of artworks. She uses the same approach to track key actors and influences. Her primary interests are actually children's education and community enterprises, not COVID. She's posted stuff on the UN Sustainability Development Goals, Digital Surveillance, Human Capital Markets and Global Enslavement. 
Israel is a first world liberal democracy and has been captured by the same sort of players and processes of other Western countries. She uses her maps to identify key people and mechanisms. I would like to add that Israel and New Zealand are similarly sized populations with strong public health systems and trust in government agencies. And what happens here in terms of government deceiving and terrorizing us happened over there. The recent processes in Israel show that and the trust is breaking down. It's a long video, but fascinating. Again, I'm writing because I was saddened by Naomi's comments, which sadly is not unusual among a certain group of left-wing secular Jewish Americans. Hey, look, Ingrid, thank you so much for sending this because I am actually going to be interviewing for next week's show, Dr. David Kuman uh, from Israel, New Zealand, as well as the Free Speech Union. And this gives me some great resources for that interview as well. And I wanted to talk to him on the back of the comments from Dr. Wolf. I really do appreciate, though, that she had the courage to say it. She wasn't expecting the question, and I could tell that she was quite confronted by it. And in the interview, she did openly say that she felt quite uncomfortable with that question. And she has herself, I know, from a viewpoint perspective, has gone through quite a tremendous change. And I think it's nice that we were able to talk about that, even though we well, I knew I know very little, but certainly um, her viewpoint is still very much of that uh, left-wing liberal sort of standpoint. So it's really nice to have that other piece of information. And it's so, I mean, this is the discussion, right? It's so important that we were able to have these conversations here with Reality Check Radio. The second part of that, I had an afterthought to my communication a few minutes ago. I hope you don't mind further communication. Last one, I promise. Naomi's criticisms of Israelis' as widespread compliance with jab mandate smacks of blaming the victim. And for similar reasons, I don't go along with the theory of mass formation psychosis popularised by Matthias Desmet and latterly Robert Malone. I quote from Dr. Peter Briggins, an American Jewish psychiatrist who has fought on behalf of psychiatric patients for many decades. Millions of other citizens are similarly intimidated and censored. Many are required to submit to vaccination under the threat of losing their jobs, educational opportunities or participation in competitive sports. And if they dare question the COVID-19 narrative, they continue to be ostracised, censored, shamed and made to feel guilty by co-workers, friends and family members, even rejected by personal physicians. The simple truth is, is what Desmet calls mass formation or mass hypnosis is a response to normal human beings to an extreme threats and har harassments and the loss of personal freedom. Add that to the isolation that was more widespread and rampant when he was finishing his book in November 2021 and the escalating threat to our constitutional democracies. It would be a miracle if anyone survived unscathed. Yeah, it's interesting. So I have read his book and I have to admit there are a lot of themes in there in a macro level, which I think he covers. And that's the way that I look at that book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, is very much at a macro level. Essentially, mass formation for me is a way of describing often natural human behavior. And there are lots of elements in there that we can sort of recognize. He talked about sort of big uprisings and movements. And I think he looks at it from a macro level, from a complete global scale. But as we know, there is lots of really bad actors out there. And I think we keep having the conversations and see what we can expose along the way. Right now from Darag, I love Dailandi. I do question her belief in Tangata Whenua and think that we need to question how that can be when they were here only 400 years before us. We have 
thought about having people on that have researched pre-tribal human settlement in New Zealand and why there is a moratorium on evidence till 2063, why museum curators speak out, and is there a possibility to stop that moratorium like has happened with the Pfizer documents they wanted to hide for 75 years? I'm happy to see who is around and if you'd like to be heard if you need help with that. Derek, yes, is the short answer to that. Uh, definitely do drop us a line to inbox at realitycheck.radio. These are the sorts of conversations that we can have. And also, too, in terms of Dai talking about Tangata Whenua of the land, that's of the land of that time, but of course the culture goes much further than that. So it's also about your histories, not only the generations that you have in this land, but the lands that go before. But I think definitely right, there's so much about New Zealand history that we just don't know. So all perspectives are really interesting. A message for Cam, people once thought I was crazy for thinking the government orchestrated the mosque shooting to take guns for responsible people. That's from Lindsay. Um, it's certainly happening now, isn't it, Lindsay? Uh, from Mike, hi, Marie. I'm just listening to the discussion between Cam re-gun control. I'm wondering why the policeman who allowed the Australian who massacred those people in Christchurch to have the gun in the first place. Why was that policeman who issued the firearms licence to this man not held to account when then there's been an alert by the police that the man was of dubious character? Just something to think on. Is there a case to be answered? Cheers, Mike. Good question, Mike. Oh, certainly, I, that's something I can put to Cam about that. He may know a little bit more about that. It may or may not happen. And of course, if it has happened, we may never know about it. So the cops want guns changed to the chassis. Don't they realise criminals have bulk cutters? Seeing as the only theft of guns from cars is from police cars, where are their chains? That is a very good question. Thank you for that. Uh, in regards to the current interview, I was advised that approximately two weeks ago, uh, Waikato School rat tested every child bar one who was a neighbour, and his parents had supplied paperwork forbidding medical intervention. This has not been widely known, I don't think. That's from Heidi. Thanks, Heidi. Gosh, so much this morning. Thank you so much um, for all of this feedback. It really is fantastic. This is from Thomas, Reality Check Radio. I've now discovered Marie's soothing voice of sanity amidst the madness. Thank you very much, Thomas. Sometimes it's not so soothing. Sometimes I can get a bit ranty, and I apologise for that. Uh, from Lynette, amazing program this morning. Wow, what an eye-opening interview from your second guest on the Māori Perspective, which I was unaware of. Keep up the good work. To Marie and Marty, I would love to hear your views on the minority parties and what's happening in their space. Love listening to you both. Shelley. I'm going to make a note of that, Shelley. Uh, we may even do something uh, just specifically on that. So that is certainly stuff that we can do. Wow, that was a lot of feedback. And as I said, we love hearing it. So send your feedback to inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us to 2057. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. Today, 17 years ago, my life changed forever. After almost three heartbreaking years playing reproductive roulette, a week early and with expediency, our oldest son was born. Our lives have been completely turned upside down. The last 17 years have been filled with laughter and tears, joy and deep heartache, uncertainty but now hope. Emotions that I'm sure every parent can relate to. The sanctity of family has been under attack for decades now, to the point that the traditional family structure of two parents at home with children is becoming increasingly more rare. 20% of children are raised in single parent families and that raises to almost a third in at-risk communities. Risk breeding risk. 
Parenting today has never been harder. And I can tell you firsthand that with all the goodwill in the world from those working in government agencies, trying to access services from health or education requires determination and tenacity. I am a fully fledged, unashamed mama bear when it comes to my sons. I will protect these two with my entire body and soul if I have to. I will not accept barriers when it comes to their health and well-being. Barriers in education? Why? I don't accept it's too hard. What can I do to make this work? Barriers in health? Why? I know there's more than one way to skin a cat. Let's make this work. I will use the poor and the claw to raise and equip two young boys into resilient, respectful young men. Parenting isn't passive, and with the current cultural climate, it's harder than ever. The old adage of it takes a village to raise a child is just as true today as it was centuries ago. I'm so thankful for all those who have helped us along the way in our 17-year journey. If I have advice on making this chaotic, beautiful disaster of parenthood work, it would be get involved. Stay tapped into what's going on at school. Don't be afraid to hold up the poor and use the claw when you're confronted with barriers to your child's education and threats to your parenting ethics. You're raising this child, not the school, not the state, you. Yes, it's hard. There will be tears. But on days like today, take time to reflect on the work that you've done and look forward to many more years to come. You've heard the words... Open, fair, both sides of the story, it's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio, rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and my first guest this morning is Margaret Kernow from Resist Gender Education. I've been looking forward to talking to Margaret after finding out about her organisation from Helen Houghton. Good morning, Margaret. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm very well, thank you. I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to talk with you. Oh, we're delighted to have you. Now, before we get started, we're going to um, get a wee statement out of the way and then we're going to dive right in. Okay. What I wanted to say before we start is just so that people know exactly where we're coming from, that by people I mean our listeners, um, Resist Gender Education is a diverse group of educators who have long-standing interests in international and local practice of inclusive education, 
and student health and wellbeing. We're not Johnny come lately's. We go back a very long way. As well as being teachers, many of us are mothers and grandmothers, and our group also includes members of the Rainbow community, and I'm one of those members. We're non-religious and politically non-partisan, and we receive absolutely no funding from any organisation or from government, which is probably not a surprise. We're all volunteers, and the only income we receive is donations from subscribers or supporters. Thank you for that. And actually, that's giving us a great jumping off point to talk about some of the work that you do. So tell us about how this group of educators, as you've mentioned, how did it all happen? Well, it started, you will have heard of Speak Up for Women. And yes. I was part of Speak Up for Women going back to 2019. And when I joined, there was already a group of educators there who were picking up on what was going on in schools and starting to become concerned. And it very quickly became clear that we actually needed to focus on education specifically because Speak Up for Women at that stage was focused on the BDMRR bill. There was also a group who were focused on sport because, of course, the implications of this in sport are huge. And so what happened was the education group and the sport group split off. The sport group became Save Women's Sports Australasia, linked up with Australia. And we became, first of all, Education Aotearoa, and then we morphed into Resist Gender Education. So we are completely independent from Speak Up for Women and have been essentially from, or we speak up as Resist Gender Education, we have been from the beginning. Yeah, we put out the call and teachers joined us. Gender is becoming one of those hot topic issues. Having spoken to a number of people on this topic now, it there has been a lot of this education seeping into schools for quite some time, but it's only now just, I think, popping out and becoming at parents' notice. So as you said, you're an organisation of teachers. So Margaret, the guidelines, these guidelines that started appearing in education, when did they start cropping up? The latest guidelines were published in 2020. And that, that's where you see quite a significant change because that's when the idea of gender was brought in. And that's when we started becoming really, really concerned about what was happening in schools. There's a, a glossary at the end of the guidelines where words are defined. And to look at it, you'd think that this was accepted science, you know, that this was real. But it's not real. It's all made up. There's no evidence behind any of this. And, and this is what is the extraordinary thing, that this idea, and it's a belief, a belief system, an ideology, whatever you want to call it, has actually now become so accepted in certain circles that people actually don't realise that this is, it's a belief. We don't know that people have a gender identity. Some people say they have. There's no way to verify that. There's no evidential test. It's just, this is how I feel. But that feeling now carries more weight than the objective reality of biological sex. And this is an extraordinary situation for us to be in. If it's a guideline, it then means that schools can opt in and opt out. Is that correct? They can opt in or out of how they teach it. But it is a curriculum area that has to be taught. But schools can decide how they teach this whole relationships and sexuality. 
because schools always have to do it and they have to consult with their communities. So every two years, schools have a consultation with their communities because how a school that's mostly got, say, immigrant refugees or another school that might have a wealthier immigrant population or a school that has Māori majority children or a school that is white middle class, they're going to want to teach things in different ways to cater for their children and to reflect their community. And so there's the consultation process, which should take place every two years. That's the legal requirement. So is that the point whereby parents can get involved in terms of how this is taught? Parents can get involved at any stage by asking questions in terms of what's happening. That One of the problems is that our teachers are so overloaded that when a resource comes along which gives you lesson plans, you're going to take it because you don't have to do your own work. It's really hard. And it's also hard for teachers because when a school buys in to gender ideology, and I say buy in, when they say, yes, we, we believe this, we are going to teach this to our children, then a teacher who doesn't believe it is in a very, very difficult position because they're being required to teach something that they don't actually believe. These are beliefs that actually belong in, in special character schools, you know, not in our public schools. So that is when often the third parties with this education come into the mix. Is that is that exactly. correct? So an outside exactly. resource is brought into the school yep. because yep. teachers are like, I'm going to hand this over to an, right. an inverted commas, an exactly. expert. So let's talk about some of those experts. Who are some of these groups that are coming into schools and teaching this these guidelines and this education to our to our kids? Well, one of the big groups is Inside Out, and they're actually recommended. They're, they're a government-approved group. So again, of course, schools are going to go to a group that the government recommends. They're seriously funded by the government to, to the tune of, you know, millions of dollars of, of funding. They're not trained teachers. They're not trained educators. They're not trained anything. But they come into the schools and they they teach this Inside Out is a group to support young rainbow people. But in actual fact, if I was a young lesbian looking at their website, I would be I would find myself not represented. They're very much a pro-trans group. So they're not coming in as objective, if you like, people who are presenting some information. Like when teachers talk and have sessions, classes around controversial topics. They present both sides. This is what some people believe and this is why this is where other people are. We were talking earlier about road signs in Tereo. That could be an example of a controversial topic that could be presented. Then they discuss it. They look at it. They talk about both sides. This does not happen with gender ideology. It is just in there as a fact when it's not a fact. The dangerous thing with that then is, because this is starting from year one, isn't it? Yes. So this is our new entrance. I just remember my sons, I mean, they would believe anything their first year teacher taught them or told them. These are very malleable little minds. Yes, they are. So what are are some of the things that these kids, that, that, that our smallest students what are some of our smallest kids what are they being exposed to well one of the things for example that they're being asked to do is to decide you know and to write down on a sort of continuum idea 
are they more like a boy or are they more like a girl? Isn't that outrageous? And, of course, the things that are used to decide if you're more like a girl or more like a boy are basically 1950 stereotypes. You're more like a girl if you like pretty pink things and glitter, and you're more like a boy if you like Lego and trucks. Immediately, we have these stereotypes of what a boy is and what a girl is. So there's no room for personalities. There's no room for what is sometimes called gender nonconformity. And we all know if it wasn't us, we know other people, could be siblings, could be friends. Tomboys was the term that was used when I was young and probably when you were young too. There's all, and there's always been the campy boys, you know. But now they're, they're being told, well, if you're like that, chances are you're actually you're probably not a boy, you're probably a girl. And the same for the girls. And this is so damaging. And this is just the message that comes through. And in the Relationship and Sexuality Guides, the ministry actually says that these concepts and ideas should be taken through all the classes. So it should happen in English. You should use these ideas and examples and and in maths and anywhere else. The fundamental right that a parent has to withdraw their child from relationship and sexuality education classes, it's being made impossible to do because the whole idea now is that this just goes through everything. That's quite concerning. I've just written down the question, when does learning cross the line into grooming? It's an interesting question to look at, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I don't, I want to be clear here, I don't think anyone is deliberately setting out to make life life difficult for our children. And I I do believe that inside out believe they're doing a good thing. You know, I want to be Mm. clear about that. I don't think there's a great conspiracy that inside out are doing to get their clutches onto little children. However, grooming's an emotive word. But the way I see it is that the idea that you might be trans is put into their minds from the very, very beginning that you could be like this, that other children could be like this. So that's put out there, and then it's always there. So whenever there are problems and issues, it's like, ah, I'm probably trans. That's what it's all about. And it becomes a sort of a a solution to problems that that children have. That's the the very concerning thing for me, um, is that this is then up there, Ah, this is the solution to my problems. And of course, then there's a, a welcoming community. You become part of a community and you get all the goodies as you do. And if I think about when I came out, it, that's how it was for me. I was welcomed into a community and it was wonderful. But there's an enormous difference between coming out as a lesbian and coming out as trans. Because as a lesbian, I'm not doing damage to myself or to anybody else. I can explore this. And if I want, I can change. Some people are fluid and go backwards and forwards. The progress that happens if you think you're trans and you start a social transition and then a medical transition and then you go into cross-sex hormones. And, and, you know, around 95% of people, some say 98, depending on the research, that's what happens. They finish up on cross-sex hormones. And this is incredibly damaging. How prevalent is this in New Zealand schools currently, that process of social transitioning through into puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones? I mean, is this happening now? We, it is happening, but we don't know because we don't have data. And we, we did a survey at the 
beginning of last year, I think, or maybe the end of the year before, we sent out to schools for information on exactly this. We wanted to know. Some schools responded. Other schools have refused to respond, citing privacy, and we were vilified in the media for being anti-trans because we wanted to gather data. See, this is, we don't know. New Zealand doesn't have a central point anywhere. Ministry don't keep data on this. So we don't know. That's a simple answer to that in terms of what's happening in New Zealand schools. I worry about the whole social contagion element of this. From what I've heard from other people who are active in this space is they talk about these great coming out celebrations at schools, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm in my 50s and I, as you mentioned before, I was a tomboy. Mm -hmm. I've had this discussion with Rachel Stewart. Rachel, you know, she was a tomboy. She liked Mm -hmm. to hunt and guns and, and, and then as she said, hey, I knew I was a lesbian, it was all good. Now her and I, had very fairly similar upbringings actually in rural provincial New Zealand. Now I didn't really discover my femininity until I was about 18 or 19. I'd be terrified if I was how I was as a kid now, that if I had somebody who was particularly enamored in the ideology, gender ideology, that they would see that identify me and think, oh, this is the pathway going on. And I I probably would have followed that pathway because as a child, you want to please. You want to... You want to please, but you also, you know, if you're having difficulty and if you don't feel like you, you know, if girls, if girls are the ones who have long hair and like to play with makeup and like to have, you know, paint their nails and are feminine, then if you're not like that, well... You know, the simple logic is, well, you're not a girl. Because if you're a girl, that's what you'd be like. And that's a very distressing place to be. And it's hard enough being an adolescent. It's really hard being an adolescent girl, you know. And mm. and you talk about the social contagion, and it's true. And if we go back a few years, you know, anorexia was the, the thing that was happening. And, and cutting, you know, girls, and this is a an additional concern. Girls have always found ways of trying to hold back being an adult woman. There are a lot of things in our society where it's not a nice place to be an adult woman, and it's certainly not a nice place to be as an adolescent girl slash woman, you know, moving into that space. And so social contagion is massive. There's been a 5,000% increase in the UK where they have centralised figures between 2010 and 2019 in girls transitioning. 5,000% increase. Now we have no reason to think that we are any different. We have over 700 children in New Zealand currently on puberty blockers. That's quite concerning. That's a, that's a lot of kids. A lot of kids. This is an off-label use. It is an off-label use. An off-label use for these medications. And the thing that I find so incredible about that is that if you come out in any form, like, for example, your organisation and say, we have concerns around this, you get Mm. shouted down by those in the media and the mob, and yet... When there were other drugs that had were used off label with COVID, mm. the the walls went up, and you were told that you can't do this and it's not safe. It's almost like it's okay for me, but not for thee. It, it is mm. such a, a minefield for everybody. It is, 
There's no question that a medical transition takes an enormous toll on the body. You've only got to listen to detransitioner stories, which are harrowing, harrowing. So that enormous toll is absolutely, there's no question around that. There's no question that we are learning as, as time goes on and these drugs have been used, we are learning more about their side effects and about the toll on the body. And it's quite different when those drugs are administered for a very short time. Yes, they have been being used, and this is often one of the claims. They've been used for decades without a problem. They were used for precocious puberty for a very short time, a year perhaps, to just for children who were going into puberty at eight or nine to put it off a little bit. That's a very different thing than actually using them to prevent puberty. And there's massive concerns around preventing a child from actually going through puberty. And we believe that every child, it's a fundamental human right to go through puberty and reach adulthood with your fertility and your sexual function intact. And that's what doesn't happen. Understand too, there are also issues around bone density, particularly in young women. Yeah, and, and men. And, and there are major issues for young boys related to both an increased estrogen and a decreased testosterone. But the, I'm moving on to cross-sex hormones there. Look, this is not an area I'm an expert in. There's a lot of really good information around about puberty blockers, but they are concerning. But my whole thing is that, or our, as a group, teachers are not experts in transitioning. And teachers shouldn't be supporting children to transition and have been told very clearly by the ministry and are told by groups like Inside Out that if parents don't like it and if children want it, it should be kept secret from parents. Now, this is an unbelievably awful situation that this should be done and kept secret from a child's parents. How can we possibly think that secrets are a good thing? against every basic principle of a decent society. I'm often finding more and more that my right as a parent is being eroded by the state with these guidelines. I mean, I'm lucky in the sense now that my boys are almost out of the system. They're both seniors in high school. So they're sort of heading out the other end. In the monologue I had today, I talked about being a mama bear. I am the first to admit I am a mama bear with a capital M and a capital B. The journey to get these children for us was so intensive that I wasn't going to relinquish that responsibility Mm. to anybody. Mm. And it concerns me Mm. that A, parents do relinquish that responsibility, but for many reasons that can be justified, Mm. but also too that the state feel that they have the right to hold back from parents. It's quite terrifying. Let's talk about the educators in this, because Mm -hmm. you must be talking to educators Mm -hmm. anonymously. Is there concerns? Oh, yes, absolutely there are concerns. And one of the big concerns is that a great many people who are working have commitments and they need their work and their income and for that. And they've also done training and they love their jobs. So they're in a bind. So we have teachers who can't speak up because their jobs would be at risk. We know other teachers who've left teaching because this was going on. And it's, it's a really, really difficult situation for them to be in. So one of the things that we've done is on our website, we have alternative lesson plans that teachers can use. So recognising how overloaded teachers are, 
and how difficult this is. There are alternative lesson plans. We send information through to boards of trustees so that they at least have the opportunity to read about some of the concerns and some of the things they need to be thinking about in their position, in, their go- in a governance position. It is really, it, teachers are in a really, really difficult position. And part of what we want to do is to support teachers who are finding that they're being asked to behave in ways and to teach in ways that actually they don't agree with and they don't feel comfortable with, but there's nothing they can do. I'll make sure that I have uh, will have a link when we do the blogs and the right. show notes with this. It's important for teachers to be able to access uh, resources. As you said, they're in a bind. It means that they're meeting the curriculum That's guidelines. Right. That's right but they're giving a, a more well-balanced lesson. Yeah, so Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so there's information for par- for teachers and also for parents. There's ideas for parents in terms of going to boards of trustees with their concerns or to principals with their concerns. We've got letters, you know, templates and things like that for people to use because often people don't know what to do. And we find that most parents actually don't realise what's going on. And when we tell people some of these things, they kind of look at us and say we're conspiracy theorists and they say, oh, come on, not that bad. That might be happening in America. It's not happening here. Well, you know, it is. You're aware of our Ministry of Health's promotion of gender-neutral language so that we have pregnant people. We have people who need abortions. We have uh, people with cervixes and so on. Interestingly, we have men who have to be aware of um, prostate cancers, but we have, but we don't have women at all. We have people with cervixes. Let's explore that a little bit with women, because I think as women, we're under attack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have been under attack for a long Absolutely. time, and as you said before, you're a, you're a gay woman. I'm almost seeing the schism beginning to happen between lesbians and gays and the rest of the alphabet community. As a gay woman who's worked within education, that works with educators, and there are a lot of uh, gay women in education and always have been, mm. are you starting to see that divide there Oh, now? that's absolutely happening because the, the alphabet organisations, the rainbow organisations, don't represent lesbians and gays. And so we have withdrawn and we have our own organisations now because those organisations are pushing a trans agenda. And it's very difficult to represent a whole range of different perspectives anyway. And there are times when you do want that overall umbrella that you all come under. But see, the reality is people make the assumption that that somehow trans is like the new gay. And so people who supported us in the law reform in the 1980s think that it's the same now. We need to support trans people. And it's enormously different hugely different and that's a really important thing to be aware of that being trans is nothing like being lesbian or gay we're about same sex attraction trans is about thinking that you are the opposite sex or no sex or whatever but it's not about being same. they deny that same sex attraction exists it's a very anti-lesbian and gay movement because they redefine it as same gender attraction. And so young lesbians have to be attracted, have to be attracted 
to anybody who says they're a woman. And this is outrageous because they are denying the reality of what same-sex attraction means. And it's also true, I think, with the trans, it's not about trans men or trans women. It is about trans ideology. I see people sucked into the idea of it, not the actual practicality of it. They get us swept along. You're seeing that? Exactly. Absolutely. And it is about the ideology. And this is not, people were often labelled as anti-trans. It's not about being anti-trans. It's not about being anti-any individual. You know, our primary motivation is concern for the children. That is why we're here our concern for what is happening to our children. That's the key thing that drives us. You know, it's not about being anti-anything. It's about being for children. And, you know, the reality is that the vast majority of of young women who transition actually turn out, if left alone, they'd be lesbians because they're the ones who are more likely to be, quote, gender non-conforming, they're less likely to be stereotypically feminine. And and still, still these days, for young women who are same-sex attracted, it's not an okay way to be. I just said in my son's friend group that one declared she was non-binary. One of my sons said to me, Mom, what does that mean? And I said, it means she hasn't yet made up her mind, sweetheart. And I just looked at her straight away and I thought, actually, there is a very high likelihood that you're going to be same-sex attracted simple as that but the the messaging that they're getting from social media but also the attention seeking behavior because everyone wants to feel special and all of a sudden trans is what's special isn't it it's just what's special so non-binary is what you do when you just don't want to be normal don't want to be ordinary yeah and look it wouldn't matter kids do this all the time it wouldn't matter except it's being promoted Everywhere in our government departments, in our when our prim, what we used to call primers, you know, the first mm. years of school, this is being promoted as how people are, and this must be supported, and and all of those things, you know. If we just let kids, let them call each other by whatever pronouns they like, let them do it all in the playground, anywhere they like. But you know, in the classroom where the teacher should be in charge. Your, your, your pronouns are the, the ones that belong to the sex that you are. This is what happens here. The teacher's in charge. The teacher should not be at the beck and call of this ideology. And so the child who this week is is he and next week is they, them, and the teacher has to run around and, and you know, respond to that and be accepting of that and affirm it. It's a nonsense. Mm. Having spoken to another educator recently, they are saying that if you do not adhere to these guidelines, that there is a risk of complaint back to the teaching council. Absolutely. Are you aware of Absolutely. that? Absolutely. That's so, true. So then yes. that actually means that if there is concerns out there, so as a parent, if I was talking to one of my son's teachers at primary school, for argument's sake, and that teacher very quietly had concerns, in a way, the responsibility sits with the parent to almost speak up because that teacher yes. is unable to. That's right. That's absolutely right. And parents must speak up, but it's also really hard to do. And it can be good if you can find another parent and speak up. 
because the implications, I mean, toilets in schools is a massive issue. You know, we used to have girls' toilets and boys' toilets, right? Really simple. But now we also, most schools have boys' and girls' toilets, but also have gender-neutral toilets. But they don't always sit together. So you will sometimes have out in the playground, the toilet that's out there that's the closest for the children to use will be the gender-neutral toilet. We had a very heartrending story from a parent recently who is pregnant. And so can't manage to hang on while she goes to pick up her five-year-old who's just started school. So she went and used the gender-neutral toilet that was the handiest to where the child was. And there was pee all over the seat and the whole thing was really awful. And she talked to her daughter about it. And her daughter said, it's always like that. We just clean it up. Boys and girls use toilets differently. It's almost like we have a different relationship with the toilet. Our skin touches the toilet when we use it. Boys stand back and pee. And little boys are not very good at peeing accurately. And has this been thought about with gender-neutral toilets when there isn't an alternative? So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that it's very clear in the guides that girls can use the girls' toilets and boys can use the boys' toilets. But... Students who identify as trans can use any toilets they want to. So their need is given a greater weight and it is more important than the need of the girls. And there's awful stories coming out, the experiences girls have in toilets. And imagine in an intermediate school, girls are starting to menstruate. There's all the issues around that that they have. And boys are there banging on the toilets and telling them to hurry up. complaining about the smell in the toilets, you know? It's just awful. The right to a single-sex toilet is fundamental, especially for girls. What has been some of the mental health impacts, do you believe, particularly on our adolescents? What layer of pressure does this now add to them, do you believe? Well, one of my concerns is that it gives a message to girls that actually what you need doesn't matter. It's a very clear statement that the small group of trans students are more important than you are as a girl. That's a message. And that is not a message we should be giving to our young women. The message we should be giving is you matter. That's the most important message we can give a child. Do you think that this trans ideology is just misogyny in the sheep's clothing? (laughs) It's a a loaded kind of thing. But yes, I'm not sure about in sheep's clothing, but it is misogyny, without a doubt. It is women who pay the price for this. It's women who lose our our single-sex spaces. It's women whose sports are being infiltrated. Well, infiltrated is not right. It's out in the open, but it's women. It's, you know, men are coming into sports and taking women's places in sport. It's women who get hurt by this, not men. Men don't care. Then, then they're still going to be top of their sports. You know, no no, no woman coming in is going to have a chance and is a, is a threat to a man. It's women who lose out. And I remember talking with some government ministers, you know, we did a lot of lobbying before the BDMRR bill went through. And they said, look, we, we just don't believe that there's a danger. But, you know, if you look at some of our most vulnerable women, and we're moving away from education, but just to say, you know, women in prisons, for example, well, think about what it means for them to have a man in a woman's prison. You know, those really vulnerable women. And you talk about the mental health issues. And 
It's interesting that a huge number of our young people who start this journey of transition have ongoing mental health issues which are not addressed and which need to be addressed. And as well as that, we have a, a much greater number of autistic children transitioning than are in the general population. Um, obviously, autism is not a mental health problem, but it is, it's, it's one of the manifestations of neurodiversity. And those children are really struggling. And this, you know, looking for reasons, why am I like this? Ah, you're trans, here's the solution. So I'm glad you brought autism up. Whilst the diagnostic criteria around neurodiverse children has improved significantly in the last 15 years, mm. more and more kids are being identified. But one of the things I do know is the support for those children within schools just simply isn't there. The funding is not given to them. Yep. You, owe, you have to be at the most severe end of the diagnostic scale to get any support whatsoever. So essentially, these kids, even if they are diagnosed, are cast adrift. And I believe are truly vulnerable to these sorts mm. of ideologies. Absolutely. Is there any responsibility around protecting those kids in schools or is it identified? I mean, surely the number I read somewhere, something like 40% of those that identify with some form of alphabet label sit in the neurodiverse spectrum. That surely must be a signal. Absolutely, it's a signal, but who's listening? <laughs> the people with the power aren't listening. And what about, what about the autism communities? Are they, I mean, are they seeing this or are they captured into the ideology just like everybody else? I don't, I don't know. You don't know. If anybody is actually out there listening to this and they are part of those organisations mm. around particularly autism mm. and neurodiversity, mm. reach out and contact mm. us, inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us on 2057 because I would love to know about that. Mm. And just to remind everybody, I am talking to Margaret Kuno from Resist Gender Education and we are looking at all of this gender education that is currently happening in our schools. Mm. Anti-conversion laws, which mm -hmm. were passed a few years ago. Have no, they, no, last year. Was it last come, year? It hasn't even come into effect yet. Ah, oh, right. There you go. Mm. I knew they were fairly recent. So do you think those are going to get weaponized against parents and or teachers or people like yourself that stand up against this and you will be then slapped with an anti-conversion label? Well, it's, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, it's very clear that actually the conversion is the other way around. You know, children are being converted into taking on a trans identity rather than the other way around. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. The, again, it's the, the problem with that legislation. No one has any issues around um, conversion therapy in relation to lesbians and gays. You know, I mean, I have friends who are incarcerated in, in psychiatric hospitals, you know. That's what happened when I was young um, and who had shock therapy and all sorts of dreadful things happened. And, of course, none of us want that. It, it isn't happening in the same way now, but it still does with some um, churches. There are still some issues around that. But, you know, that's completely different from conversion therapy in relation to trans people because that hasn't even been defined. What does it actually mean? What is conversion? Is it conversion therapy if you actually address the mental health problems that this young person is having? 
rather than just affirm them instantly as trans, because that's what it seems to be saying. You must affirm them as trans. Anything else is not acceptable. But well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But it's another example of putting lesbians and gays and trans people in the same basket. And we're, we're completely different. The issues are not the same. When you were talking about this affirmation, because, I mean, teaching often is you set up boundaries for students, but within those boundaries, you also create a safe environment to enhance their imagination for them to learn. With all of this affirmation, doesn't that just throw those boundaries down and just allow for chaos? I mean, if you had a child in school who said, um, you know, as little children do, you know, I'm Superman or I'm whatever, well, how do you respond to that? You know, do you say, yes, you are, and I'll call you this and I'll treat you as that and you can fly, yes, we'll go up the top and you can jump off and, you know. We, we, we have ways of managing children's desire to live in a different reality for a time, but we don't affirm it completely as a lifestyle or as a, um, a who you really are. But then that's the boundary too between play yes. and reality. Yes, and that's the, that's the boundary that is gone between reality and fantasy because it is a fantasy for a little boy to say, I'm a girl. It's a fantasy, you know? There's nothing that makes it anything other than a fantasy. Complacency and compliance, that's been really rife in the last three years. Are you sort of seeing that gender ideology has kind of pierced the veil of a lot of people that have just what I call the go-alongs to get along? They will do, they will listen to an authority figure. They're the, they're the ones in the ash conformity experiments. They're, they're the ones that just want to get one step in front of the other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then they're now, the kids are coming home from school talking about this stuff. Is this the one issue that has actually sort of shaken parents awake and said, mm, I think you need to take a closer look to this or this is disturbing? I think it has with some parents, but not with most parents. Because most people and parents are part of that bigger group, don't actually see where this is going. They really don't. And the the parents who know where it's going are the ones whose children come home one day and say, I'm trans. The children who weren't saying it when they're two and three and four, but who suddenly when they're 13 come home and say they're trans. And one of the problems is that, that parents, when your child tells you that they're trans, you've got two alternatives. One is to celebrate with them and the other is that you're cancelled and they don't want anything to do with you. And as a parent, of course you want to keep every channel of communication with your child open. That's part of it. When your child is struggling, you need to be able to connect with them. When they're an adolescent who's doing things that you've got no idea about, you want to find some way of keeping those channels of communication open. And so, of course, you're not going to say, don't be bloody ridiculous, of course you're not, you know. You try and find a way of keeping connection. And at the same time, parents are, are so concerned at what it means. I mean, other parents leap in there and celebrate, genuinely celebrate it. Um, but most parents are concerned about what it means. In terms of your website, your website is fantastic. 
Okay. Let's talk about some of the resources there. So where, you, as you mentioned before, there are lesson plans there for teachers. What other resources for parents will they find there? If they are uh, wanting to know a little bit more about what's going on in school, just to be aware, what, what, what can they expect to find? Well, they, can, they can certainly find out the stories about what's going on. So we have, we have personal stories on the website. And actually that is one thing, if any of the listeners have personal stories, that we could put up completely anonymous, always completely anonymous, that would be great because it's really reassuring to know that someone else has experienced something like this. So we have personal stories, but as I said, we have letters, uh, template letters that people can use, ideas of what you can do in a given situation, you know, how, how you can take action, you know, by talking to teachers, by talking to principal, by going to the boards of trustees, by finding other parents. So we've got ideas around all those things. There is a take action sort of part of the website that will give people that. But, you know, a lot of it is actually getting information about what's being taught. So we have reviews and explanations about what's going on and what children are being taught. So it's pretty easy to navigate and it's a really, really good place to go to get some of those, some of that information about what's really happening because you know it, it can sound quite innocuous oh you see teaching them this well that's all right you know it's not going to bother my child too much because they're fairly set in, in their own sexuality and identity and they know who they are but it's insidious and what it does is gives children a message that this is okay that this is normal it never talks about the toll that people face when they start medically transitioning it's just, this is all lightness and light and great. Embrace this. Embrace your new identity. Embrace your new sexuality. Well, not sexuality, but your new sex. And, you know, it's not like that. It's not like that. But one of the problems, I remember talking to a, a detransitioner who at that age, she was about 19, and she'd been, since she was about 14, had been in the process of transition. She did a medical transition. And I was concerned about a young child I was involved with. And I said to, to this young woman, what can I say to her that will help, that might get her to think about what she's doing? And she said to me, and it was devastating, she said, there's nothing you can say now. It's too late. Because it's being put out there. And so from a very young age, children see this as a viable option. And we talked before about little kids who can't think critically, who can't understand quite complex concepts. So they just see it. You know, we, the stories are incredible. You know, we had one child who's, who went back to school after the summer holidays and his friend had transitioned over the holidays. And he said to his mother, so can I grow a vagina next summer? That's what happens for children. They're black and white thinkers. They don't, they don't have the complexity. Just we have so many stories. We have the girl who came home. Now, I know this wouldn't have been said, but the message she got from the class was, when you come to puberty, you have to decide whether you want to be a boy or a girl. And she said, I don't know. I don't know if I want to stay a girl or if I want to become a boy. So muddled, muddled, muddled stuff because t children are being taught stuff at a, that is inappropriate for their level. Mm. And Pride Week is coming up. Oh, God, don't, yes, Pride Week is coming up. <laughs> Pride Week is coming up. Pride Week is coming up. <laughs> and we've just had, uh, I mean, I was stunned at the 
messaging around Pink Shirt Day because, of course, Pink Shirt Day, I always say when it comes to this ideology, people say, oh, really, is it that bad? And it's like, look, this, is, this isn't the brochure that you pick up at the supermarket. You know, the brochure, the brochure always sells the best features and benefits of, of what the ideology right. is. And it's, it's like it's a cult people mm-hmm. this is a cult and you get into it and you think oh wow that sounds really amazing look you can sugarcoat anything and make it look great on the surface but mm. the minute you dive in things can get more insidious and i see that happening with pink shirt day mm. what was a really good concept in order to teach kids about responsibility of peer-to-peer um, relationships and, and respecting each other a peer-to-peer has been hijacked mm-hmm. into uh, particularly trans-by-trans ideology to actually yeah. protect certain protected groups of people, which is, of course, all part of critical critical theory. They just get out of Pink Shirt Day and wham, we're going to hit them with Pride Week. And really, I mean, as a lesbian, I mean, do you even get a seat at the table at Pride Week no, now? No, absolutely not. We we don't even get in the room, let alone around the table. It's Pride now is all about trans people. And at schools, it's all about trans children. And we have to ask why with this very small number of people, of children, why are we pushing this? Because it is being pushed. When you put something around all the time and celebrate it and say how wonderful it is, then children want to take that up. They want to be like that. They want to be part of it. We talked before about the resources for parents. One of the things I would suggest anyone who thinks we're making too much of a fuss about this, go in and look at some videos of detransitioners. And if you don't know where to find them, just Google on, or go into YouTube and put detransition and listen to what they are saying about their journey. Because what's happening is for children who, are, who have concerns, who aren't happy in We all have this in our adolescence. Who didn't have times when you thought, what's this all about? What's my life about? When a solution is put there, that is a solution that takes such a toll on your body and it's put in as a wonderful way to be without any of the downsides. That is absolutely so damaging for our children. And the way I see it, children are being funneled. You know, and so anyone who's got mental health issues, who's got a neurodiversity and who has any kind of struggle going on is just going to go right down that funnel. And it's very, very damaging for our children. So this is actually a perfect time if you're a parent and you have concerns. Um, either do it yourself or get together with a, a group, um, have a look at some of those templated letters. And actually, as you said right back at the beginning, ask questions. Ask, ask questions. Ask questions of your school. What The easiest question in the world to ask of the school is, what are your plans for Pride Week? Yes. Isn't it? And and, and actually seeing what those plans are. Are they operating themselves? Are they bringing it in from uh, outside? Just ask those questions. Because what is it about? Why are they doing it? They're the questions to ask. Why is this happening? What are we actually celebrating? Ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. Look at websites, Google. And if you think 
that this is not really such a big problem. Have a listen to the stories of the young men and women who've gone through this process. Because we're not talking about the people who as adults can make a decision about how they want to live their lives. I don't have a problem with that, none of us do. This is about our children who are being told when they start school that changing sex is an option. And it's a great option. If you're a little girl who likes Lego and trucks or if you're a little boy who likes pink and glitter, and it's not a great option. Marg Kuno from Resist Gender Education, this has been a really interesting conversation. Uh, what's your website again so people can find you? Our website is resistgendereducation.nz. And could I also give another website, Marie, for people Absolutely. who want to know more information about puberty blockers and about things that are happening in relation to that? It's called fullyinformed.nz. And there's some wonderful information on that website. It's great. And, of course, the Speak Up for Women website as well. Thank you so much, Marg. If you've got any comments, queries or information you'd like to share with us here at Counterculture on Reality Check Radio, that email is inbox at realitycheck.radio, in the box at realitycheck.radio, or drop us a text at 2057. Marg, thank you very, very much. Greatly thank you, appreciated. Thank you. This is Counterculture with Marie Busky, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome. You're with Reality Check Radio. This is Marie and you are with Counterculture. My guest this morning is Martin Langford. And Martin is the candidate for Democracy New Zealand here in Napier, which is my home electorate. Now, Martin... How does one go from being a dentist to a political candidate? That's a journey. It certainly is. It's um, And it's been a, a very, very recent one. Um, I haven't been political my whole life, really, until the last three years when I started to get frustrated. I think frustration was the first, first feeling and sitting in my dental chair and being told from above what we could and couldn't do and what was going to happen. And then that slowly started to turn to sort of to anger. It's like sitting there, not being able to, to actually make any changes and thinking things have to have to change. Um, I think it was the uh, Labour weekend when the announcements were made about people going to be the lockdowns, or not the lockdowns, it was the um, the mandates when those were, were actually brought in. Um, that really started to sort of rattle my cage and start me get a bit worried. Um, and then we went down to the protests. And I'd never been a protester. I wasn't. Uh, that's not not part of my, um, my my being. But I really felt strongly that something was 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 rotten, and and people needed to change. And uh, we went down there, and it was after that that then um, I'd heard about Matt King and how his his thoughts, his philosophy, it really did start to to, to resonate with the way I was feeling. I'd looked at other parties. I was there's a nice term out at the moment, isn't it? Politically homeless. I was certainly politically homeless. And I went to see some other a party leader to give a spiel, uh, spiel down in um, in Napier, and I was horrified by his um, his uh, his attitudes. He was very very childish, um, not a not a, not a pleasant person. So I thought I can't do this. I can't go with that party. I can't go with any of the parties that that, that I've voted for in the past. And then Matt um, had made that bold bold move, 
um, and decided he was going to go and, and create his own party. And when I started looking into that, I thought, gosh, this this is just what we've been thinking. And um, it resonated. And that's when I contacted and said and made the offer and said, you know, I am willing to to actually give up my cushy life sitting in a dental practice being um, insulated and I'm prepared to to put my money where the mouth is and and do something. Um, and it was it, from then on, it's just been a, a a bit of a roller coaster, enjoyable, very exciting. Um, and it, you wake up and I actually feel I'm doing the right things. You wake up in the morning ready to to, to do more, to do work, to, to, to read up, to, to, to study up about what's going on and, and what we can do. That political homelessness is certainly something that many of us have been feeling. The protesting, it was funny you mentioned that about being sort of something that you'd never done before. That was one of the things that I discovered was how many people felt that they weren't being heard. Now that you're going out and you've started the campaign, are you getting that sense that people are finally relieved that their voices could be heard? It really is. It's 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 very pleasant meeting people and their reaction. That um, warm, friendly, um, just saying, "Oh, thank goodness, thank you for doing it. the thank yous you get you, you for for doing it, the appreciation." And it's like, well, I'm, I'm you know standing up for for this uh, for, for this position, and they just say, "Well, thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for doing that for us." And it's like, wow. Um, my wife and I, for for some time, we'd come back from from working. And I'd say to her, is it you or is it me? Are we just missing something? Are we mad? Because so many people, even friends, close friends, weren't seeing problems. They were saying, oh, you've just got to, you've got to trust the government, trust the science, uh, follow, follow what you're being told. And we're just saying, no, it doesn't make sense. This is not, not what we're used to. This is not right. Uh, we'd been looking at information coming in from abroad. And it's so nice now to know that there are other people out there who are feeling the same way. Um, and it wasn't just we weren't just isolated. And now they they talk to me and say, oh, so thank goodness you're standing up um, and, and saying things that we felt that we were too, not that quite scared, probably could be the word, too scared to say. Um, and it, it's a really good feeling to know that you're, you, you want to be on the right side of history and you're actually making a difference to people's lives because they actually feel they feel happy that their voices are being heard. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a stretch. I mean, let's be honest, it is a stretch that you will win the mm-hmm. seat for Napier. But I mean, if you can't believe that you can do it, why stand? However, do you believe that if you aren't successful in the candidacy, that you can do a lot of good work by at least talk, you know, talking one-on-one to people and actually seeing what's going on in our community? Absolutely. And we've got, we've got a fallback plan. You know, if it's not this time, which, I mean, if the stars align, I mean, we're in a very, very um, strange political situation at the moment where there is there is a, a, a groundswell of people who want to to look at a different option. They don't want to vote left. They don't want to vote right because they're so similar. Um, but if if I don't um, achieve it this time, I've then got three years. I will be working um, absolutely as hard as I can to work for the next election. So that we're, we've got our businesses up for sale. I mean, this is how serious it is now. So we've literally um, this weekend finished off some details. It's actually going up for sale this week so that I've then got more time to actually concentrate, one, on this campaign, but two, I've got three years where I will be working part-time if need need be, um, working in other practices and looking to work like that. So I will actually have the time to actually concentrate on the next election and back the party, be a voice for Democracy New Zealand, 
um, in Napier and get out to meet people and push for the next election. So if it's not now, it'll be next election. Mm, so a really good long-term plan. That's really important. I think people know that. And let's face it, Stuart Nash only, I mean, he had, what, two full cycles before the vote was split in 2014 that he became a candidate. So that perseverance and getting your name out there is certainly something that is important and it allows people i guess enough time allows voters enough time to get to know you which is which is great um you i want to touch on something that you said before with people that you've been talking to i have a theory that a lot of the cultural and malaise that we have in our society at the moment is due to the conformity of comfort we will do anything to maintain a certain level of comfort. And the conformity that I think a lot of Kiwis showed, particularly since those mandates were announced, personally staggered me. Are you now finding that a lot of those that were quite happy to go along with things back then are now starting, the the veil of that comfort is beginning to be pierced with things that are happening in the political landscape? Yes, I mean, we've we've noticed a change in um, conversation with with close friend groups that we've, we've been with, uh, whereas at the beginning, we definitely kept quiet. We didn't talk about our um, the problems that we were, were having or, the, you know, the doubts that we had and that it wasn't right. And we and for, to keep things comfortable, we didn't say anything. And they, when we were having discussions, were definitely, oh, well, this is the way and everything's going in the right direction. Well, give that, I'm trying to think, it must be 12 months, because I think it was 12 months when we actually went to a, a next meeting of the same friends and and that had changed that they were they were having the same comment making the same comments as we were coming up with the same um problems and it's like it's taken till now but they were actually far happier to say talking about that and then when i actually uh, announced to them that i was the um the democracy candidate they were more than supportive and it's just like wow so here you go we've we've turned from people who were die you know stuck um in in the same attitudes actually you know smiles on their faces and happy and say oh well, good on you well done um a lot of it's like i hope that's sincere or well, good luck well good luck with that and that's the sort of comment that comes across and i know that um andrew austin has, has put me a sort of moniker of long shot langford you know his comment was you know langford the long shot candidate for napier and it's like well i'm, I'm quite happy coming from a bit of an underdog situation or being the underdog there's less pressure and i can get out there and, and get our message across. It, yeah, it's quite rich though coming up yeah, because I mean Napier does have a history of voting for candidates that are outside of the normal political sphere. I mean, you just need to look back to Garth McVicker for that. And I mean, whilst he didn't win, he certainly garnered a huge amount of the, the vote on the night. So let's talk about the cyclone, because that from a local candidacy point of view is I think going to be a pivotal issue. You have been getting out and having a really good look at what's going on. So what are some of your observations? Uh, well, what what a mess. Um, what a mess it's, it still is. Uh, we we were away at the time. We were up in, in Whangaparoa. And so we saw the cyclone come down through Auckland, watching as the waters raised around us in the house we were staying in, in contact with Napier. And it was just starting to spit rain down in Napier. And then we went, Marie, um, my wife wasn't sleeping and she was in contact uh, with our family back in Napier when all hell broke loose. And it's like, and she was watching the the levels rise in the on the TV in Auckland. And we got the warnings up in Auckland saying, you know, the stop banks, it's getting close to the stop banks. And she actually contacted our daughter back in Napier to say, look, get out, check the animals because the animals are outside, check what's going on because it, there could be trouble. 
we then um then there was sporadic contact because obviously the comms went down we were uh, our flight was um cancelled to come back from auckland and then we got that flight um rearranged and came back in and we came over the um esk valley and it was just brown um shocking to look down normally you see the the, the greenery and the, and the colors down there and this this brown smudges right across the, the hawks bay areas we flew in but then we got into the airport, got our lift back to where we're living, and we're in this complete bubble where there was no damage. Everything was just, we could have lived our life from Napier Airport through Napier um, Central, out to Green Meadows and Taradale without going too far. No, no problems. And to know that a couple of kilometres up the road, the bridge had gone down at EIT. To know if we'd gone left from the airport and gone to Esk, Esk Valley, what a complete and utter you know, devastation was down there. So when we brought Matt King down, we've, we've been in contact with people out at Esk Valley and, and Bayview, and they arranged a tour. To, they got permission for us to go around and see some of the, the houses and to, to take views inside. That, that it's just such a complete mess still, um, and how those houses, the pe- how the people survived when you see the devastation and the, and the, and the, tr- the terrible trouble that was there. Uh, we went out to Swamp Road just recently to um, to buy some items from from a wood wood firm out there. And he was telling us his story about he was out there, he was up to his knees in water, and then that suddenly rose to his waist in water. He's trying to sort of salvage what he could. And he felt a log go past him. He felt something swish past him because he's in murky water. It's starting to swirl around him. And he, and he goes, well, there, but for the grace of God, if that had stabbed him in the leg, caught him in the leg, trapped him, you know, swept him off his feet, he said he'd have gone because the, the the force of water at that point. So it's what went on was just absolutely abominable. Um, and how people, you know, unfortunately there were loss of lives, but how that figure is not multiplied, um, it's it's amazing. It really is amazing how people survived. It, he told us about the parents of his friend who went to go and save their children, to go and pick them up, but, and their family went across the bridge up at Pukitapu got to the property, picked up the people, turned around to go back, suddenly found the bridge had collapsed. So they'd literally minutes before come across the bridge and they're just like, wow, you know, that, that could have been them on the bridge. They had no idea what was going on. Um, and it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear the stories of people who are just fed up. They're getting to the end of their tether. They've been out of their houses. They've been relying on insurance, which isn't always forthcoming. They've got the promise that there may be money, but the, the insurance companies, are, are some of them are being quite um, reticent and, and giving people the, the funds they need. They can see the end of the money supply. They haven't got any savings left. They've, they've had to leave their properties and they're despairing. And they need to know where there's an end point, when they're going to be able to do what they want to do, whether they can rebuild, whether it's worthwhile even cleaning up the houses, are they going to be moved on? And it's the not knowing that is really starting to test people now. Mm, there is certainly an anger out there. I know that with ones I've spoken to that have been displaced, there is that unknown quotient, which after what, two and over two months now is starting three, to work. Three months, it's February, yeah. March. Um, or February, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for February, for Valentine's Day, that's how I remember. Well, that's, that's the one you've got to remember. Yep, yep. Yeah, and it's so it is wearing thin and... And it's also a double-edged sword because you've got this great unknown. There has been tremendous generosity shown by New Zealanders and Hawke's Bay locals, which has been amazing. But a lot of that generosity, particularly with money raised, is not reaching where it needs to be Mm -hmm. sought. And 
then the flip side of that, as you said, is that bubble in town where it is very much life as normal for those in town, except those businesses, whether it be in Havelock, North Hastings or Napier, are struggling because, of course, people are staying away thinking that the devastation that they're seeing is region-wide when, as you and I both know, it's very, very, it's exceptionally acute in a number of small pockets. So it's how do you balance um, the needs of those who have been affected via the needs of those that are still being affected secondary mm-hmm. or tertiary uh, with the, the ongoing effects. What are the things that you think need to be occurring now from central government that just simply aren't? Decision-making. The, the buildings have been yellow and red-stickered, but that doesn't necessarily mean, the red-sticker doesn't necessarily mean that they will not be um, able to rebuild. That, that I think that is more that you cannot enter the building, do not come, you know, come onto the property. But they need to know, there needs to be a decision given to them, is it worthwhile tidying up, cleaning up the sections and any cleanup that they do, or are they just going to be told, no, this is now land that will not be built on, um, to give people that that clarity. What are they working at? What have they got to do? Do they waste their money um, cleaning? There was, uh, we went out to, to Pacify and the helpers out there, um, it, it was the continuation of Zeb's crew um, to Martha's crew, I think now, and they're cleaning with buckets in a house that is um it reeks it, it's this long i mean this was a couple of weeks we weren't in and it's so it's, you're looking at two and a half months down the line they are still pulling buckets of silt out of the bath from the bathroom in the dark um and trying to clean this house and you look at it and you go well if it, if it was my house you'd probably have to say no it's got to go because it's it's not going to be um, it's livable. It's, it's rotten. The, the, the floor plates have gone. They've got to still pull up the floorboards and pull the silt from underneath it. There's still silt, as I said, in the body of the house. So a lot of people are, are volunteering. They're coming in. They're spending their time. They're not working in a healthy environment. They're putting themselves at risk. To what end? If somebody from government, be it local or, or central, can get in there and say, waste the time. Just do not waste your time on this house any longer. But they're given the thread of hope. They're saying, well, we've been told if we clean the silt out, if we clean it, then there's a chance that the house is salvageable. But someone's got to give them a point say, this is beyond repair. Stop now. Use your, use your, 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 your physical um, efforts elsewhere because that, that's going to be appreciated. This is just a waste of time. Um, and I think that's where we're at at the moment, that people just are still trying to help, still trying to be helpful. But they're getting angry. One of the ladies there was, she said, where are all the helpers? We had the offers of, a bunch of people from a, I think it was a, a, a club who were going to come and help. They never turned up. So it was about eight people in hazmat suits running around trying to get the silt out. And it's been day after day, um, but getting nowhere. And the house is a mess. And But there's nobody from the council comes around to say, well, don't waste your time because we're going to read. This is this is not salvageable. But nobody's making those hard decisions for, for these people. No, there seems to be, and particularly with the councils, I think, obviously they've got infrastructure issues and I wonder whether or not their focus is is laid there but as you said there are still individuals out there and uh, I think it was Paul Painter from Yummy Apples we spoke to him Paul Brennan spoke to him last week and he was also talking about the knock-on effect for not only just people's homes 
uh, in their personal space, but also the orchards, like Pakafai, for mm-hmm. listeners that aren't aware, is uh, pretty much, is, is, isn't it? It's a road that's a um, homes and businesses. There's a lot of orchards down there. Uh, one of the oldest orchards down there is actually a family orchard with business partners of mine. And uh, and I asked them, I said, you know, what's going to happen? She goes, look, they don't even know whether they're going to replant. Yeah. Yeah. And replanting takes... Um, so you're looking at from by the time you plant to getting return on investment four years if the seasons are good. That's right. But, yep. And then you but you've got to wait for the nursery that propagates all of these trees was also wiped out. So you're looking at a two year lag for seed trees to go in. So that's six years. The government's saying in their package we'll go fifty fifty, but who's going to fund the other fifty percent? Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys are leveraged up to their eyeballs. This flood came in just prior to harvest. Absolutely. And that's on the back of two harvests that were many of these growers had to drop apples on the ground because they couldn't have REC workers in due to COVID restrictions. So it's almost like I feel for an industry, for us in the Bay, this could be the straw that broke the camel's back. Have you sensed that at all from people you've spoken to? Ah, oh, there is certainly despondency. Um, there, was, there was hope. We went out originally out to Swamp Road. That was the first place we helped. And that what they wanted was to clear the roots around as many of their trees as they could. There were some they said, just don't even bother going down that section. That's It's just too deep. It's We've lost it. And there were the ones which were higher ground and you, you could get a shovel. It was probably getting up to about, what's that, 10, 10 centimetres, 10 to 12 centimetres deep silt that you were shoveling out to try and get a perimeter around the, the trunk of each of the trees. Um, they, they were hopeful. Uh, they were thinking that they could save some of of their of their assets. Goodness knows now. I mean, it, it really is time there to go back in, and I, I really should um, take the opportunity to go back in and, and revisit and see how they're getting on um, down the line now, and what what has been achieved, and whether we did manage to save any of those trees. Mm. But as you said, though, it's it's that it's that knock on effect, and I don't think the people in New Zealand realise that that the fruit bowl that we we, we were has been so badly damaged and it's not a case of next year it'll be fine as you said it's it's this understanding that is it's a delayed planting waiting for maturity getting a first crop in um and it yeah it's 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 just been the perfect storm you know started with the the lockdowns which meant that they didn't get their proper cropping before then the perfect storm of 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 coming through um the fact that civil defense didn't get the warnings out that that's more for evacuating people you're not going to be saving the land but everything just seemed to go wrong at the went wrong at the right time to create a terrible situation Mm. other issues outside of the cyclone specifically to napier what are some of the things that you see that napier is unique to napier that as a candidate or an MP that you would need to to address. So let's look at crime. Uh, um, I know that the little dairy that is uh, down the road from where I live, and in fact is just around the corner from your dental practice, has been ram raided three times in six months. I mean, yeah. locals are starting to get quite fed up. Is there any sort of response? Have you had a chance to catch up with anyone in regards to policing around crime in the local area? No, no, I, I've sort of uh, not, not, not had that opportunity. I, I did um, go to the meetings where Stuart Nash was there, who was saying, well, and also the, um, the the district commander 
both of them saying, well, you know, it's not really changed. Um, there isn't really a spike in crime and, and things aren't that bad. But then you go and talk to the shopkeepers. I, was, I went into the city centre. We've spoken to um, one of the, uh, the owners there where they moved the planters from outside of his business. Next thing you know, there's a, there's a ram raid. He's smashed in. They have moved the planters back. But you're having to, it's common sense. Don't remove something that's an obstacle to a guy whose business has been damaged several times. We went into Piramai where there's another um, bakery that had been attacked. And I said to him, well, it doesn't seem, you know, you've got the bollards there. That's stopping your ram raiding. And he said, well, it wasn't a ram raid. He said, this was a machete and a club. They they smashed through my doors and, and you know, broke in that way. So we're looking at, at, at people who are using, you know, really quite violent um, and, and people saying, you know, um, or being told by the authorities that it's not that bad. Whereas the people on the street are saying, you know, the repeated break-ins, the repeated, I mean, now the latest one is, is car tyre slashings that um, people are, re- are reporting. Um, so it's, it's it's frustrated. The people are frustrated. And I think they get frustrated when they're told that there isn't a problem. Mm. So, well, I, and, and Stuart Nash, he, he used, he liked to use the word perceived. If you, you know, if you perceive that you're in danger, then and then it got shouted down for that. It's like well, per- perception. If people are in danger, if people are being ramped, if people are being broken into, if people's private property is being attacked on the streets, that is a danger, and something does need to be done about it. Um, one of the councillors was talking to me and said that Napier Police Station does not have cells. It was downgraded. They decided not to put cells in Napier. So if you've got somebody who's the police, are, it's being they're being stretched. They're not being aided and abetted. Um, you know, they they find it they they have to take people and process them over in Hastings. Um So they're not so they're not even holding um remand or anything in Navy. So everything gets processed in Hastings. That's what I was told. He, he said that there's no there are no facilities there to no hold holding people. cells in Napier no anymore. No holding cells in Napier anymore. Wow, you know, and so okay. So this is me with my Napier resident hat on and i am sure that what we're encountering in napier if you're listening and you're thinking well why are we talking about napier but i think a lot of these issues are can be felt uh, around the country so i don't think what we're experiencing in napier is isolated now what the cyclone has taught us is that you can it's very very easy to be cut off from oh, yes. a neighboring city, region, suburb, or area. So, you know, Napier and Hastings were completely cut off from each other, not for just days, but for essentially outside of their most essential workers, weeks yes. with bridges out. So we now have no longer have a hospital in Napier. We now no longer have the ability to um, retain and hold violent offenders yeah. in Napier. Yep. Um, Surely these must be priorities for things that we need to return back to our city. Well, that it's certainly got to be looked into. I sort of mentioned in in one of my um, talks with somebody about looking at what should be done for Napier because it's it's always been a case of oh well that the two can share facilities. Well, it just and uh, someone at that point said, well, it's a very tenuous link between here and Hastings, and you don't you don't tend to realise that until you start thinking about the road system out of here and you go, oh, my goodness, you know, who'd, who'd have ever envisaged that we'd lose the bridge at, at EIT and the bridge further? You know, it absolutely, um, on, a, on a tenuous link, 
And then we're left with people because people are, are employed in both, you know, commuting from Hastings to work in Napier and vice versa. And so we're left in, in a very, very sticky situation when a, when a, a, an event like this occurs. And then, you know, with, with wire cut off, you and, you know, you got wire cut off as well. You know, we're in an area where a, a little bit of a uh, something goes wrong and suddenly um, we've lost all our communications and we've lost uh, the ability to actually help people. I mean, it shook me that until a couple of weeks ago, they were still helicoptering food into the, the Tutira area, you know, because Devil's Elbow had been shut down, closed down. And it's, it, I'd suddenly had some some patients come through and they said, oh, yes, we were released last week. You know, this is a couple of weeks ago. But that was getting on for two months after the event. They were still taking delivering food to Tutira and the farmland out there. It was crazy because they couldn't get up to Wairoa and they couldn't get down to Napier. Yeah, that's right, because they were completely cut off. They um, Both the Bailey Bridge and the Elbow, I think, pretty much got opened within a week apart, so they That's, were com- yeah. to- totally isolated. There is This is one of the issues that I have. This government has been exceptionally gung-ho at wanting to, what they say, save New Zealand taxpayers' money by centralising as many services as possible. Surely these disasters have proven in provincial regions, like from East Coast, Tairawhiti, Wairua, mm-hmm. um, right down to the bay, that that centralisation comes at a cost, and it's a human cost, not a financial one. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's all good words from them on wanting to save costs. And then you think about the money that is absolutely just wasted, absolutely on using consultants. And, and one of our um, candidates is actually looking into it. He wants to receive, get the information out there. So he's, he's researching it. He's going to check through that it's it's um, correct. But the amount of money that this government has wasted on consultancy, the amount of money that goes out to pay for um, paperwork exercises that make us look good, but do not actually achieve anything for the actual people of New Zealand, uh, vanity projects. Um, and it, it just does uh, the idea of keeping things local because local people know what's going on. Um, central government just just words they just create words they mm. produce words and they just they don't really listen to the to the people in the provinces to use the cultural current cultural parlance um there are two things that this government excel at one is virtue signaling so i think that's what the term you're looking for and the yeah. other one is gaslighting which is what you described before which is a reality when everybody knows in reality that something is deeply wrong and yet you are told again and again and again that that is no longer the case. I mean, Ginny Anderson last week, I mean, that was a dog's breakfast coming out again about those crime stats and claiming that it's that perception that uh, Nash was talking about, oh, no, it's only there because there's an app now, so people are reporting more crime. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is just, it's farcical. Consultants. Let's talk about consultants because, of course, the new Labour candidate, is he not from the consultancy world? Slightly slightly um, um, confused as to, to what he, he does do, but it sounds like he's some form of consultant who goes into the big firms and is a problem solver for them. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I, I mean, it's, um, he could be a transponder if you go back to friends. I don't, I don't quite know. What what he does, but it sounds like he is a bit of a, a fixer. Mm. Uh, 
I just sort of couldn't help feeling that uh, he, I mean, look, I do not know the man, so I, he's probably a very nice chap, but uh, I, on paper, I just looked at it and thought, excellent, a Nash clone. They obviously think uh, Napier has a type. Um, uh, right. Yeah, I mean, and then you look at, I, was, I went down to Christchurch last uh, weekend and met with a couple of candidates from the Christchurch electorates. And when you start looking at the, the breadth of, of, of knowledge through those guys, one of them really into his, his um, economics and was starting to, to, to give me all sorts of facts about the economy he's looking into. We've got farmers, lawyer, doctor, dentist. Um, you start looking at the, the breadth of, of depth of, of, of people with, so you, you're less likely to need this, this consultancy and, and fix it guys who can, you know, schmooze between adminers and, and the government. But you actually need people who, people who've got ideas and a knowledge base that can push us forwards and actually give good ideas without having to pay for outside consultants to come in and, and give us the give us the facts. Mm. Let's local. Right. Getting back to being local, and yes. I think you brought that up just before in terms of communities and the importance of communities. We have a situation in Napier where, and the great Hawke's Bay region is that unlike um, some areas such as Auckland, where they went into a super city type council, uh, in Hawke's Bay we do not have that. We have uh, multiple councils of which I think, now Napier, your, the electorate only does cover that one council, is that correct? Oh, and two actually technically, because I guess the regional council would fall under that purview as well, wouldn't it? Um, so, uh, Napier City Council. Yeah, Napier Council is um, the city city of Napier itself. Then you've got Hastings that goes around the outside, and then you've got uh, Wairoa is is independent as well. Mm. But so so when you've got Hastings district overlap overarches, and that's why it sweeps around and includes Pakapai, and then comes down into Esk Valley. So, so does that, that fall into some of that Napier electorate zone? Which bit? The Esk Valley? The electorate zone. So some of... Oh, um, the electorate. See, the, the national electorate yeah. is from the Tutaikuri. Yeah. And then takes in Esdale, the farmland, keep on going up the um, Wairoa Road until you get up to Wairoa. Right. So then the you're actually is, dealing with three councils, Hastings yes, region. Hastings, yeah. yeah. So you then... And this has been the problem with the, with the cleanup because you find that there's a division of a road or a, a river... And the councils say, oh, well, that's not our responsibility. That's the other council's responsibility. And then the other council goes, oh, well, we, we can't do that because that that overlaps, you know, that's that goes up to that border there. And so it's... Um, it's so you get back to bureaucratic dysfunction oh, and yes. decision-making yeah. and we're making a full loop to where yeah. we started, yeah. You know, and, and I look I look at Napier itself um, and I think, I believe that Napier, just the Napier one, was 130 houses, 130 residences. So you're looking at the, at the regional councils, looking at more than 1,200. So for 130 in Napier, they're saying, oh, we're working so hard. And I don't like to just put people down and say, but it is just words. Because we went to see a property out in um, Awatoto. They were clearing and tidying up. They had got a huge mess to clear up. And they were taking it out on a big truck. And the council, they'd got in contact with the council. And the council had said, yes, dump your stuff. Here's the spot you can do drop it there and it will be collected eventually. So yes, get it to a collection point. So they were doing that. Well, apparently they had three further council members or council workers come back one past. What the hell do you think you're doing? Well, we've been told we've put it. There. No, you're not. That's not correct. He said, well, we've been told that by the council. So we're doing it. 
That same day, two more council people stopped and said, what are you doing? So rather than being there to help and say, we're here to ease the situation, they were actually just sort of sticking their oar in and saying, you're not supposed to be doing this. You're not allowed to do this. Yet they'd been told and given that go ahead by someone at council that that's exactly what they should be doing. And then you're told the council is they're working. My all the workers are working so hard. They're they're pulling their fingers out. Um, I read a comment. Someone said, "Well, it's great these people are pulling their finger out and going back to a warm, dry house of an evening that hasn't been affected, and they're sticking their noses in where people are living in houses which they're pulling the jib off. They're trying to dry. They're they're trying to get the house clean. They're living in their sheds next door for security, so they're actually on site." So they're, they're, they're pushing, putting their, their efforts into looking after their houses, and yet they're being told this different stories by people coming from the council who should be there to help them. And, and literally, if, if Napier's got 130 residences, you'd have thought that they've got a long way down that path of, of resolution by this point. Mm. And certainly in Aototo, I mean, they only got power restored two weeks ago. They were pretty much two months without power. Absolutely. And that that neighbourhood, again, is literally right on the the fringe of the city. So from CBD via car out to Awatoto is is pretty much five minutes of that. So we're not talking somewhere that's uh, away from the the main city. This is probably the area closest to the city that was is that it was affected and visually so. So that's right. And and they've basically really they've been ignored. They're if I can say their problem was they didn't have a a single voice. Mm. You know, they've got people living in properties who'd been moved out. So they didn't have a single voice. They did have a meeting um, a couple of weeks ago that I attended where the council came and talked to people from Brookfields, Miani, Awatoto. There were quite a few people there who were at the end of their tether, particularly an old gentleman, an elderly gentleman who was almost in tears by the time he stood up and then he walked away. He had to walk out of the meeting because he said he was just he wanted to move back to his house, but he was nowhere near being able to do that. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're the forgotten people because, you know, Esk Valley were very and Pukitab have been very good at getting their community hubs and working together. And they've done really well. But poor old Awatoto just with, with a how how sparse the population is down there, they hadn't got that single voice and nobody seemed to be listening to them. And the council, dare I say it, somewhat dismissive. It's like, oh, well, it does does seem to come across as that because they were just left, they're still, you know, living in in their outhouse at the moment, waiting. I think they're getting builders in soon. But as you say, we're three months down the line and there's still that the house is not dry and we're now heading into winter. Mm. there's going to be problems there is going to be problems and the mental health issues are just going to exacerbate i think as time goes on so what message let's wrap this up so what message would you have for uh both local governance here in hawks bay and also to central government if you've got a single message for them of what is needed straight away across this winter until the election what would it be oh make some decisions and and get people in, into better accommodation um, and give people some sort of oh, end point. Um, stop, stop fudging the figures and stop saying we're working really hard. Work hard. Get people out there talking to people and, and keep them informed because they need to know where they're going and how they're going to get out of this mess. Well, on that, thank you so much, Martin, for giving me your time this morning. I really do appreciate it. I'm talking to Martin Langford, Democracy New Zealand candidate for Napier. Actually, Martin, where can people find you if they want to reach out? 
Uh, my contact details will be on the uh, Democracy New Zealand webpage. And that's probably one of the easiest things to do, to go online and, and, and find me there. Um, I've also got a I've got a sign written car with details all over it as well for the the, the local people. Um, but o- online is probably the easiest because it gives all the information. Brilliant. And also the most important thing to remember, everybody, is regardless of what you do on April, um, October 14, you've got to get out and vote because it, I think this election is going to be one of these pivotal elections that we haven't seen in this country for quite some time. So, Martin, thank you very, very much. Don't disappear, though. Stay tuned here on Reality Check Radio. We've got more great conversation with me, Marie, here on Counterculture. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You with Reality Check Radio on Counterculture. It is now time each week, as we do, to talk all things media and culture with my partner in crime, Marty Gibson. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thanks. Good. I'm good too. I'm good too. I uh, mixed it up this weekend and uh, didn't do the weekend papers. I decided to do a dive through Radio New Zealand to see what I came up with. And we did come up actually with a lot of the similar things but the biggest thing i think let's kick off with politics poll there was a poll out fancy yeah. that leading into an election yeah yeah it, it was sort of yeah the blandness of politics horrific crime and yeah ongoing menticide of youth around climate change that was the main themes that i drew out of reading the papers um over the last week and yeah, also, um, too, some of the most boring policy decisions. You know, one of New Zealand's most insightful journalists at the moment is uh, Heather Duplessy-Allen. I think, you know, her, her columns normally uh, have just good judgment and, and good assessment. She summed it up well when she said, in the last two weeks, Labor's made a hash of convincing voters that understands how grindingly hard the cost of living crisis is. Megan Woods' five tips to find money in weird, weird places was so tone deaf it belonged to an Amdram opera. Kiwis are beyond being told to unplug appliances to save on electricity costs. They've been dealing with soaring inflation for two years now. The people who are falling behind on their mortgage repayments or taking on two jobs over six days to feed the kids have already turned the hot water off on the washing machines. Telling them to find money in places they've already exhausted is not just pointless it's insulting yeah she hit the nail on the head there mm. and then you know you sort of contrast that and it's i think it is meant to be a light-hearted thing but beehive diaries oh claire trevor you know she's um rather more of a blunt instrument than uh to uh heather duplissy allen's uh, well-sharpened knife she wrote beth a staffer in the Beehive who makes Robertson's Budget Day cheese rolls each year, Julie delivered six of them on Monday, freshly buttered and toasted, a traditional cheese roll wrapped around a sausage. The verdict was, um, edible, enough to eat two. 
However, they also proved that sometimes two rights do make a wrong. Cheese roll, good. Sausage roll, good. Cheese sausage roll, not so good. We thank Beth for her service to the nation and for the normal cheese roll she included, but note Hipkins is not necessarily the right person to have as a culinary muse. Oh, dear. The banality of evil. He likes his sausage rolls. What's he going to do to me? Um, she did have a more detailed um, analysis on, you know, reviewing, this was in Weekend Herald, uh, reviewing Chris Hipkins' first four months. Hipkins has a good political instinct and trusts that he is very good in Parliament, where he has long been one of Labour's best operators. But sometimes it is not enough. He has been caught out on questions around details of policies or on basic economic questions such as not knowing how much the government spent in a year. Right. It's because he's one of those blank screens that doesn't have a CPU. The CPU's uh, at Klaus Schwab's place. Can't expect him to to have much um, memory to draw on. It is so concerning because where do, where does somebody go? You know, we, and when we look at the polls uh, and the trends of those polls over the last little bit. I mean, there has been a steady decline with Labour with this gentle sort of uptick because obviously people are finding Chris Hipkins just so boring. Is it me? He is so unbelievably uninspiring. And not only that, it's let's look at the legacy of wrath and destruction that he has held in every single portfolio and in the five years that he's been kicking around office. I mean, education, well, disaster, up, health, a disaster, like police, a really disaster. Gentle, right voice. You, you know, you don't scare anyone. And, and they think, well, what could he possibly do to me? Because, um, you know, he sounds harmless. His little beady eyes, yeah. his little Clinton haircut, you know, what's he going to do? We talked about the strategists the other week, about what, what are the strategists wanting to do. I, I'm wondering whether they're wanting to bore us to death into the next election. I mean, you've got uh, Carmel Cipollone coming out with uh, stating that they're going to keep the retirement age where it is. Ah, that good old chestnut superannuation. Let's not change that because we might scare our silver-haired voters. Surprise, surprise. You know when nationals are proposing to bring it in? I can't remember the date, but I subtracted my birth year off it and it came to 65. So what a surprise, eh? We got screwed with student allowances. They disappeared as soon as I went to university. Then as soon as I paid off my student loan, ah, they're interest-free now. Because with the super, when they they did those maths, because so for listeners, our birthdays are a week apart. I I think we just squeaked in because it was the to the end of the financial year and we're both March babies. So, um, but, yeah, yeah. Well, but the, you know shocker. what? I mean, shocker. But, I mean, is it going to make any difference in the grander scheme of things? Uh, the other thing they came up with this week is the apprentice scheme that was bought out during COVID and they're wanting to maintain that. They're obviously worried about the base. I think the base that they've always relied on to be there for them year in, year out, they're, re- they're realising are a bit wobbly on it. Labour or national? Labour. Yeah. So they've gone to two tried and true sort of chestnuts. And I mean, they they can't play the fees free anymore because that's been done. So, okay, let's do the apprenticeship scheme. That's obviously the next best. But where does that leave universities? Trump got elected, and that's what no one likes to say. Yeah, no. What's that old Orwell observation from the road to Wigan Pier? You know, socialists don't 
love poor people. They just hate rich people who aren't them. You know, that Claire Trevitt article was interesting. It was interesting insight into Ardern. A staffer described Hipkins as uncomplicated to deal with. It was a contrast to Ardern, who liked to be all over every detail of every move and announcement. And then you get, yeah, Ardern avoided doing anything risky in front of the cameras. No eating, no photo ops requiring physical activity, except for running away from the podium when someone asked her a question about Hong Kong. That was the only time I'd ever seen her run. She once refused to stand near a calf on a dairy farm. But then you sort of further down, and you've got to, when, how long has Chris Hipkins been in Parliament? Must be getting close to 10 years, right? Oh, easy, yeah, because he was in opposition yep. for at least two terms, yeah. It says, he has not yet built up a network of trusted business people he can sound out to gauge the mood or how a policy shift might go down. He needs to have that. Thus far, it seems his most frequent contact is with Auckland Chamber head Simon Bridges. What are the odds? How would you be paid for that long to represent people and not know any business people you can have a chat to? Apparently, he's got the same problem with the old bros. Yeah, he doesn't have a, a network of Māori he can uh, call up either. First ports of call were usually Willie Jackson, New Zealand's Al Sharpton. I guess that is the danger that you have when you live in a very, very confined echo chamber and bubble that is Wellington. Yeah. I mean, he's been an MP there. He's He lives pretty much his entire political life there. It is different, you know, even well, in the student politician thing as well. I mean, that is one thing that we can say for the, the fat controller that is Christopher Luxon. I'm sorry, he does. If you ever watch Thomas the yeah. Tankation, Sir Topham Hat, that's his name, isn't it? Sir Topham Hat. He yeah. just looks just like him. At least he's lived in the real world. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the yeah, corporate world, but it's it's you know yeah. outside of the Wellington Beltway bubble. He has, but yeah, at the same time, I know I've talked about him being incapable of remembering that primary rule of sales where features tell, benefits sell. I just like, please, Labor National Party staffers, if you're listening to them, just put a sign on his wall features tell, benefits sell, and you know, just take the air out of Labour's just easy criticism that all you care about money by, you know, talk less about money and more about the impact it has but on But here's also the Duff Hands. You're always talking about the Duff Hands. Mm. A really great example of the Duff Hands this week has been these bilingual signs. So Simeon Brown, who I think, you know, is a little bright light for National, mm. he's, you know, he's actually... Yeah, I like Simeon Brown. Yeah, he's and he's got energy and he's got a bit of spark about him and he's... Um, you know it's getting whipped out of him by the whips? Which is a pity because I think he's, you know, he shows huge potential and he's quite likeable. You know, I, mm. all the things I've seen, he seems quite likeable. He's And he's done some really good work, cut through work, as opposition spokesperson for transport. I mean, he was the one that highlighted that whole pothole issue and, yeah. you know, got all those photos sent in. I mean, he's clever. He's engaging. So he brought up concerns around the bilingual traffic signs, and he did say they should be in English and National would ditch the signs. Perfectly reasonable, perfectly clear. And then old Chrissy Bishop had to come in and clarify, clarify the position, stating that, oh, no, it's not that we have anything against bilingual traffic signs. Um, it's just that, you know, I think the money should be spent elsewhere. 
Mm. It's just like, Chris, you know, really all you've gone and done is just confuse things. It just, it was a statement. It was a good position. Leave it well alone. And of course, Chippy chimes in and accuses, and I quote, national of dog whistling over bilingual road signs. Good to throw a little bit of the vocabulary in there. If you need a dog whistle, Chris, there's one right there. Now, these signs, it's one of those, to me, nothing issues. A road sign needs to be read and understood by those who are on the road. I've just done a big road trip in the last week. I've been up to Auckland and back, and I've had to drive through the Napiutapo Road. And believe me, if you've not driven that road lately, it's not what it was. We've had a cyclone. Oh, I drove it through it on the way out in the dark. So I didn't see the devastation. It was a hairy experience because the road from Napier just prior to Tipahui was pretty ropey. And I have to say, not the most pleasant experience at sort of 6am in the morning. But coming back was in the afternoon and you can actually see the level of devastation. So firstly, what those roading crews have been able to achieve is no short of a miracle, to be brutally Mm. honest with you. When you actually see the landscape in the bright, cold light of day, it is devastating what has happened but that road is dodgy and there is um, lots of temporary traffic lights there is it is literally road cones everywhere there is the road itself you cannot there is no quick trip to Taupo at all it's just you need to be careful your instincts and everything is honed to be completely safe now if there was a traffic sign up there that had two separate languages on it. I mean, it needs to be as clear as it can possibly be. I'm not saying that the Māori language isn't a relevant language. I'm not saying the Māori language isn't a beautiful language. But at the end of the day, when you've got to make split-second decisions to be safe, the last thing you want your brain to do is going, ah, what? Huh? What? Stop? You know, it's just wrong. Now, Hipkins fired back and said, oh, they have bilingual traffic signs all around the world. There's no difference in this. If you go to France, the traffic signs are in French and they're in English. Well, the French speak French and the international language is English. In this country, the number of people that are bilingual interreal to be able to understand what that is, is so small. And then we have people travel, tourists, they're driving our New Zealand roads, which even without a cyclone, aren't exactly lovely, big, beautiful European autobahns or expressways. So there are roads where you need to be on your game 100% of the time, and you're throwing in this obstacle where not only English is a second or third language, but they'll have absolutely no exposure to te reo whatsoever. Sure, pop it on a sign for vanity, you're entering Napier, Ahuriri, welcome to Heratonga, whatever it is that you want to have, that's fine, that's a vanity sign, good as gold. But on a sign that is there to help and aid drivers to keep them safe, I'm sorry, this is a disaster waiting to happen in my book. Okay, rant over. It's one of those things, if I feel myself engaging with it, I always think, well, you know, Maori on signs fewer Maori babies beaten to death. You know, I I, uh, I think there are other priorities. I think we need to engage far more with um, Maori history of this country because Maori don't know it very well, let alone white folks. The names are a, a great part of that. We've got so many big problems. And as I said, any time I, I feel someone trying to get me excited about something, I, I'm just in the habit now of looking the other way. Uh, Before we leave politics, 
I see our friend Mr Seymour is uh, trying to memory hole lots of things that he talked about and discussed. Uh, Isn't he the little stinked here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he has just come out with a piece on the platform, and I think he's – it's really interesting. I think he is trying to backtrack on – things that he said in 2021 and he was riding high in the polls speaking of polls he was riding high in the polls in september 2021 there was a poll he was sitting just a whisker of 15 percent in support everyone thought he was a classic liberal who wouldn't be all in favor of mandatory experimental gene therapy and he was playing his libertarian card he was doing all of that he, he his base was growing everything was the world was shining on david until he showed himself to be the little authoritarian, yeah. like he's everybody a else. to be an authoritarian, it turns out, rather yeah. than... And, I mean, that saw a shift in the polls. I actually pulled it up here. It saw a shift in the polls. Within six months, he went from just shy of 15% to around 7.5%. So his support halved mm. in that time. Now, he's been he's actually been gently clawing that support back but I think he kind of realized that he upset a surprisingly large pool of voters that are now feeling very politically homeless I'll put my hand up that that'll be me you know I yeah um, so that's me done for fact even though I like a lot of policies around education I think they've got some great MPs but yeah the, the gaslighting um is is uh is strong with this one Yes, these aren't the droids that you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, it is. I just found that really interesting. I, as I said, I think in last week's show, um, you're a day late and a dollar short, David. Sorry. Uh, I think there is, unless you are going to, to do something quite radical, you've burnt the trust of a lot of your voters and they're not going to come back. So it will be interesting to see what they do because there is a huge politically homeless portion. And I know I'm one of them on party votes. So I really don't know where I'm going to go. Well, and you, you and I have both been, I mean, you know, we, we certainly weren't at the forefront of that protest in Wellington, but I supported it. And I know a lot of people who didn't go down were the same. And and, and you, you could hear all of that, as I said, gaslighting. Oh, it's just a tiny proportion of people who think that it's uh, unsafe to give pregnant women uh, an experimental medication when normally it takes at least 10 years in the normal population before they'll take it anywhere near a pregnant woman. Yeah, uh, and suddenly it's all safe. And he's come back to with the same old tropes that he has. He brought this up with his interview with Paul, and he said, a year after the violent breakup of the anti-mandate protests, there's a long tale of division and resentment. The easy answer is to dismiss the protest, judging by its worst members. That would ignore many other discontented but peaceful New Zealanders who were there and who supported them. So, oh, really, David, because you all, because this is who you were all about in that interview, make no mistake, there were those who swung nooses at journalists shut down businesses already hammered by COVID restrictions for two years and harassed young women just walking to school. Well, young women can be harassed just walking to school by anybody. He's hammering those same tropes over and over again. If there was one idiot running around with the noose, that does not represent the entire thing. Now, he's trying to walk that back, but it's, no, it's too late, David. New Zealand needs just one Alex Antic, just one actual conviction politician yeah i mean I, I can understand why he did that he wants to get as many mps into power as he can and figures out oh, 
well, we'll actually, once we're in power, we'll, um, you know, be able to do all the good stuff. But, yeah, the, the fact that he doesn't have the stones to risk being outside the herd, and, and that is the point that I've made several times. We've got some sort of selection process where in order to lead a major party in New Zealand, you've got to be in that 65% of people who keep hitting the electric shock button in the Yale experiment. Mm. They don't want independent thought in there. They want middle managers. In New Zealand, the, the number of sheep to people might be um, decreasing, but the number of politicians we've got who are actually sheep in wolves' clothing is worrying. It is. It is. Well, let's move on to some uh, weightier topics. I guess with the uh, with the weather we've been having, there's just a steady diet of climate change alarmism. And I saw the um, the school climate strike tiny little bit of the paper it was a really small story in the weekend herald about it and it mentioned organizer sophie hanford and i thought well who is sophie hanford and it turns out sophie hanford has a bachelor of communications from victoria university the home of pedophile john money majoring in political science so New Zealand career politician starter pack. She flew to Thailand, she didn't do it by Zoom, to represent New Zealand through APEC Voices of the Future and was elected as a Kapiti District Councillor in 2018. So I presume she's about 23 now. So still in that messianic phase of childhood where you can see things very clearly in front of, uh, in terms of black and white. And uh, But the most interesting thing is she's a Labour Party staffer. She is. Uh, she works for the Minister for Economic Development, uh, Barbara Edmonds. She's protesting economic development and teaching children to see it as a uh, something pernicious that must be stopped at all costs. I've been reading this awesome book called How the World Works by a guy called Vaclav Smil. It talks about the five building blocks of civilization, but what these kids don't really understand as they stream through time with a comet tail of plastic crap streaming out behind them is how much energy they actually use and so how um, quixotic what they're demanding is the average person uses energy that if you if you convert it into what a human is capable of generating the average person in a developed western country uses the energy output of 700 people working full-time around the clock. So, you know, they think, oh, well, you know, we'll just, you know, instead of driving around, I'll bike. It's like you've got to maybe be a little bit grateful for what energy is doing, but not starving. The thing I'm fond of saying is there's no feminism without fossil fuels. Often, you know, I'll see feminists wanting to reduce fossil fuels. It's like, well, you know, once food security and physical security go you're pretty much back to shelling nuts in the cave while uh, we men go out hunting. But as I've always maintained, this is an ideology, whether it be climate ideology or critical theory or critical race theory or gender studies, these are all idea pathogens which have their core within affluence and comfort. Yeah. Well, it's wooliness as well. I mean, I remember hearing when, um, uh, Ginny, is it Ginny Anderson, the Minister of Police? Um, it is. 
yeah, she's also the Minister for the Digital Economy, and she was asked by Jack Tame, you know, why they've subsidised the video gaming industry. She said, we felt they offered great opportunities for the economy. We want to be a high-wage, low-emissions economy. One of the least quoted, but for me, it should be a T-shirt, quotes of Jacinda Ardern, which just summed up all of this wooliness is, in my mind, it's simple. In my mind, it's simple. And, yeah, when you're young, you can see things without nuance. And it's much easier, especially when you're going through that messianic phase that often leads young people to be frozen in time as as student politicians and then career politicians. National bad, labour good. And unfortunately, we've all got our shirt sleeves caught in the machinery of that bullshit. Mm. It's interesting you say that because I've just uh, finished talking to Marg um, Kuno from Resist Gender Education, and she was talking about how all of these ideas are being introduced, like in, particularly in terms of gender education, into these kids from year one. And the the line between play and learning has now been blurred. So, you know, these kids are introduced these ideas, which as she said, when you're a five and six year old, your thought is very binary. Yeah, it's a very pernicious little thing, isn't it? Because it's the, the weasel words in it, child-led play is kind of teacher-led play. You know, Māori are getting pulled along as well. I saw there was a Wātia news article, Māori pushed tiriti focus in school climate strike. And I like to, well, I don't want to talk behind the bros' backs, so I, I, I uh, made a comment on that, that if Māori did more sums and fewer huckers, they would be annoyed to learn that pretty much everyone in the beehive is okay with borrowing, i.e. bankers create debt for our grandchildren, 30 times the total treaty settlements this decade. They're all for sending it to corrupt nuclear-armed nations that are building new coal-fired power stations via corrupt carbon markets, all to have zero impact on stated goal of reducing a trace gas that's vital to all life. You're getting played by the bankers, cuzzies, and you're going after the bait like eels into a hinaki. Not a single comment on that. Lots of likes. I think they know. And you've got slimy little hinaki masters like old Willie Jackson herding them into the hinaki because they're getting paid 300, 400 grand a year to do it. Certainly something to watch. And I think, again, how many times have we said doesn't matter what policy gets announced, whether it be climate or social, when it comes from left or right, often the intention is the intention to improve actually makes the outcome vastly worse. And Māori have been screwed six ways to Sunday. I mean, there is no doubt about that. So... And in, in, in a way, they're almost doing it to themselves again. They're putting trust in one, you know, as you said, it's almost like a, um, what did you call them, a sheep and wolves clothing. Yeah, well, I mean, Shane Poe, you know, who I, I think, as I said, I've never met him, but I, I get the feeling he's a he's a well-meaning soul, but he, he wrote a story about getting a pistol pointed at him when he was uh, in a dive bar on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, and some... Bartender leaped over, you know, the bar obviously kind of used to gunplay and told them to bugger off. And he said, I don't want to see a world in which we would sooner raise a toast to a brave barman than limit widespread access to deadly weaponry. I guess he's not meaning putus there. Um, by the same token, I don't want to see one in which we get better at pulling, putting up sandbags 
before meaningly tackling the ever-present issue of climate change. It's like, as I quoted, uh, I think I did it on Talking Politics, you know, the dumbest comment uh, after the budget on climate change was James Shaw saying, we just haven't spent enough money to prevent climate change. Well, you know what they've got in common? None of them have science qualifications. Like our organiser, Sophie Hanford, studying uh, communications, majoring in political science. That's as close to science as they get. Remember when the COVID panic started to soften? And I said very cynically to my husband, you just watch, climate will be back on the agenda because they need to keep the population in a certain level of fear in order to control. And we're seeing this now with climate. And every time there is a major weather event, they're ramping up, you know, and you're seeing it in the UK as well, that they every element of weather, if there's uh, going to be a bit of heavy rain, it's ramped up. If there's going to be high temperatures, the scale that they use to colour those temperatures is increased. Now, to be fair, on the rain front, uh, there was a rather interesting graph. It has been a wet year. You oh, get them. Incredible. Yeah. Incredibly wet. And I think we're currently in La Nina. We're, we're heading, I think, into an El Nino weather pattern. They'll all be complaining that there will be no rain next. Well, I, I mentioned to you on that article, they um, they said it's going to be the, you know, could be the hottest the world's ever seen. It's like, no, it'll be the hottest since you started your grass. Taking records. It looks like they're going up, which is about 30 years ago. Mm. Yeah, no, you'll ignore the medieval warm period. You'll ignore the Minoan warm period. And you will keep ignoring all of the barometric data that shows that storms were more severe and more frequent in the 18th century because it doesn't fit with the narrative. And I followed the climate change string and found old James Renwick, he was science communicator of the year, he had a cheery observation, except from a book that was titled The Coast is Doomed. I was once interviewed for television while standing on the beach not far from my home. At one point, the interviewer said to me, so by the end of this century, all these houses we see along the beach here will be gone? It was a pretty confronting moment. Most of those houses have been there for decades. Each one is someone's home, and those people are part of my community. I paused and took a breath, looking up and down the beach before replying, yes, I said. Yeah, it's a, it's a menticide. It is a menticide, because here's the thing, I mean, in terms of a historic perspective, and look, believe me, I could be wrong, outside of the Younger Dryas, which happened at about 12,000 12, BC, yeah, sorry, yeah, BC. 12,000 years ago, so that's Yeah, 12,000, yeah, 11, whatever it was. So outside of that period of time, where we have all this astrological debris raining down on the earth over hundreds of years, which then broke, essentially ended that ice age, and the sea levels rose dramatically. When have we actually seen those things shift? I know that there are things, now are things being swamped or are they sinking in Venice? Sea level can't rise in one place and sink in another. There's a lot of weasel words in old uh, Communicator of the Year's article. You know, he, he talks about sea level rise when it's actually um, sinking ground or shifting riv river mouths. And, you know, it's the same with those Pacific Islands who, you know, you see these earnest leaders saying, the, you know, West has got to do more on climate change at the UN. Never saying, well, you know, part of your problem, the reason it seems like sea level's rising is because you're my did you know you killed parrotfish using dynamite and they stopped eating coral and shitting out sand and you kind of exported your sand now you're getting a bit of inundation it's not because uh of uh of my truck 
it's because you're fishing for parrotfish with dynamite. It's just more bread and circuses, isn't it, our friends in climate? More bread and circuses. It is a thing. There's a, there was a, a, a story in the Sunday Star Times about a um, trans woman, so someone who was born a man in, in Ireland and you know always felt trans and remarried his wife, I guess presumably now in a lesbian relationship. Um, but the story was, we thought we'd be shunned. How wrong we were. And the story is basically like, oh, you know, we thought everyone was going to uh, isolate us or whatever. It turns out they were really nice. And I think, you know, that's the majority of New Zealanders who get called anti-trans when they sense that um, this creepy interest in children's sexuality uh, is deeply disgusting and wrong. Well, it's not about the people it's about the ideology yeah, it is taking compassion for the people yeah it's taking these ideas into places where i think are places that parents should own like sexual education of your children that for me is the domain of the parent not the domain of the government not the domain of the school not the domain of inside out that's mine yeah. back off uh, I read somewhere the role of a father is to preserve innocence. But to actually have this level of education normalised mm. in a very binary matter to very, very young children as if this is fact. And that is something, if you haven't had, a, if you've just tuned in now and you haven't had a chance to listen to the interview that I've just done with Marg, please do go back and have a listen on the replays because as she said it is she said it's all been loaded in there as part of the education curriculum these guidelines are there how you choose to express the guidelines is up to you so if you are she said depending on the nature of the school she said they teach it in different ways and she said and a lot of teachers just actually all schools just relinquish that and actually hand it out to an outside organization such as inside out to teach this education and they teach it based as if it were hard fact it's not hard fact mm. Sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. I, I, and, you know, you, you you say teachers back away from it. I mean, if, if you were a pedophile and you got to talk to kids about sex and you got to say to them, don't tell your parents if they're going to be uncomfortable about it, there would be – you'd imagine that there would be some of them that would go for that. And teachers um, – Teachers moist children at a higher rate than priests, it's mm. worth remembering. Well, but also when saying, does this sound familiar, and teachers are concerned, guess what? When the teachers are concerned, they are unable to do anything about it because if they voice concerns around the guidelines and the gender education within the school or actually even discuss it openly – they are then censured by their registration board, their teaching registration board. A complaint can be laid, and these teachers are put under threat. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. The it male is, picks up gets hammered down. 
It is absolutely, and it is really dangerous. So it's so important. I think this is where the parenting comes in. I think we now, as parents, have to actively parent more than we've ever parented before, because the dangers now that are putting that are being put out in front of our children isn't the creepy little man that we were taught at school. Don't go off with the man in the car with the lollies. Stranger danger, stranger danger. That danger is now being instilled in our schools by our government, by our education department. That's the stranger danger. We're parents. It's up to us to stop this. Well, and you know, I know to a lot of people listening to that, it sounds like astronics, but, you know, I've, uh, as you know, taken a real interest into where the tap roots of all this reach and where they reach generally, although unsurprisingly, are a bunch of perverts. John Money, a favourite New Zealand academic who um, Victoria University, when they're fretting about whether yoga is a cultural appropriation and stories that are paid for by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, never mentioned um, John Money, who studied education and psychology at Victoria University, completing two master's degrees by the time he was 23 years old, taught in remote primary schools during World War II, took the position of junior lecturer in psychology at Otago University, conducted sexological studies on intersexual children, sexual fantasies, paraphilias, and especially pedophilia, defending what he called effective pedophilia. He was objected to for attempting to normalize pedophilia. So this guy's where all the gender theory comes from. And I I have been led to believe, although I haven't found it myself, that Inside Out still refers to him as the father of guides their theory. He's the guy who did the experiments on the twins where he forced one to uh, grow up as a girl, which this kid said never, ever suited him, passed it off as a complete success, his theory that gender was just really a social construct, ended up in one of the brothers dying of a drug overdose, one blowing his head off with a shotgun, and uh, the father killing himself in grief and shame for what he'd put his kids through. His kids stopped wanting to go and see this, this learned professor at Johns Hopkins University for obvious reasons. He was forcing them to be sexual with each other and taking photos of them. Sorry to talk about this. I mean, you could get into Foucault as well, who I was sort of, you know, when I returned to academia a couple of years ago, attempted to, and just I knew a bit about Foucault and having to be just these people so worshipful of them. And a teacher at my kid's school, I think I might have said this before, said, you know, why have you kept doing it? I said, no, there's just too much Foucault. I don't understand what, what you guys see in that guy. He said, oh, I love Foucault. And a lot of teachers feel this way, but you can read. And Michel Foucault, of course, for those that don't know, he I mean, he is one of the godfathers of postmodernism. So he, he, he and he, he he's the one that brought it into the modern academy, from what I understand. So he's gone and taken a lot of those ideas from those earlier uh, French philosophers, um, well, I guess philosophers, you'd call them like Derrida and stuff. And I think he moved it into. Well, they, were, they were kind of contemporaries. They, they, yeah. Those guys basically took Marx yeah. after it was clear that Marxism didn't work as an economic system and use it as the social system that uh, mm. well they put we lipstick on they put lipstick on the pig really didn't they that's what well, they did they didn't just do that I mean Foucault um, he, he was a dirty little well, sucker I mean you, you, he, yeah he, he talked about his time in Tunisia and there was a guy who was interviewed on French 
TV a couple of years ago who confirmed that while visiting Foucault, he witnessed what Foucault did with young children in Tunisia. Ignoble things, the possibility of consent could not be sought. These were things of extreme moral ugliness. In a second interview, he recalled, speaking of these children, that he was, that they were eight, nine, ten years old. He was throwing money at them and would say, let's meet at, at 10 p.m. at the usual place, a local cemetery in the town of Sidi Bosed, north of the capital Tunis. He would make love there on the gravestones with young boys. The question of consent wasn't even raised. Now, if you've got kids at school, what they're learning sits on a basement of what this guy said. Your teachers have been raised, most academics now, in absolute adoration of this creepy French pedophile pervert who ended his days knowingly spreading AIDS in San Francisco's S&M bathhouses. It's beyond the pale. And it's time we took a real good look at where just the bad ideas of these guys are taking us because it's it's not anywhere good. No, it's not. And I mentioned before with the interview with Mark, we talked about what do, what do parents do? What do the you and I's of this world do? And the biggest thing is you've asked questions. Go into school and actually ask what it is that's going down at school. What, you know, if you're concerned about a particular curriculum subject, check and see what's going on. I know for one of my sons, he's actually just switched schools recently. And that was purely because of logistics of getting him to school caused from the cyclone. So that's why we made the move. But he did say to me now that he switched from what was a Presbyterian state integrated school to a Catholic state integrated school, which is where his older brother is. And he came home and he said, oh, man, it's so nice to have maths and English without all this climate bullshit. Wow. And I was like, what? And he's like, oh, yeah, they stick climate change like in everything. Amazing. And I actually felt dreadful. I didn't realize it was that bad. And I said, babe, why didn't you say something to me sooner? And he said, oh, I just thought that that's how it was. Oh, I don't, I don't want, you know, anything like that. Teenage boys. <laughs> yeah. You've got, you've got to look forward. You've got that to look forward to. It, well, yeah. you know, it's creeping in earlier and earlier. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to, to school my, uh, my kids up on, on the Minoan warm period and the medieval warm period. It's sort of like a vaccination. Because the openness that they have in schools about the stuff and the, and the level of indoctrination, that's what amazes me. And I did say to um, the boys, because they're now at Catholic school, and so the Catholics, because these things are guidelines and they allow special character schools or schools in different cultural areas to put their own flavour on the learning. So that is actually a good thing because it means that stuff that is in curriculum, that's set in curriculum, particularly if you're state integrated, so you have to teach it, they're able to apply it in such a way that is uh, suitable to their to their classrooms. Uh, and I, I, when the gender and sex stuff came up at school, bearing in mind that my boys are sort of in their senior years at high school now, I've said to the kids, I said, oh, you know, what, what was the reaction of the boys? And my eldest son just said, oh, they just sat there and laughed through the whole thing. And and, he, and I said, well, why? Because of the, what was being taught. And he said, nah, for how uncomfortable the teacher was for teaching it. So I thought, oh, that gives me hope. (laughs) They're just sitting there looking at it going, seeing straight through it. The most conservative, your your boys, most conservative generation uh, since World War II, apparently. Yeah, I've heard that. I mean, we've seen their crazy blue-haired cat lady aunts and how how miserable they are. 
that, that they, they, you know, you know a fruit by its a tree by its fruit. You can see pretty clearly that none of this is making folks happier. No, no, not at all, not at all. Uh, and meanwhile, meanwhile, in uh, cancellation land, our little friends at Anheuser Busch are still trying to backtrack, trying to backtrack on everything there, and it's not working. And now Target. It appears that Target's got themselves into a power poo. I think I mentioned it last week with their pride collection of swimwear. So this is where you basically have uh, little girls' swimsuits. And I'm saying little girls' swimsuits. Little girls' swimsuits with tuckable pockets. So you can put your man your man meat parts away so they're not seen. That didn't seem to bother Adidas because they popped themselves out there with full man meat parts on display. But... No, there is the controversy is continuing and it is now beginning to affect their share price. So their stock has dropped. Their stock has dropped by 10% in the last little bit. So go work, go broke. Well, it I continues. Mean, yeah, it's, it's, I guess, you know, getting back to the complete corruption of the tertiary education system by perverts like John Money, Michel Foucault, you, you, you've now got a whole cohort of kids coming out of tertiary education who believe this and and i i guess they're hitting the marketing departments now and and uh telling all the old fuddy-duddies that this is the new thing and there'll be um dinosaurs left behind if they don't do it so i would anticipate a correction pretty soon look it's going to take a while i think for the ship to turn around but i think the ship is beginning to turn around and it all comes back down to i think people power and it's us you know, talking talking about what's going on in schools. It's Pride Week coming up uh, in schools. Well, you know, Excellent. as I've said before, Marie, it, you know, I, I'm less interested in or my position on things being correct than I am on the importance of having the debate. I, I think that's really important for us to keep emphasising. The problem has been that people like Seymour, well, people like every single politician uh, in the Beehive, blocked the debate. The media mm. blocked the debate. The medical council blocked the debate. Schools blocked the debate. That's a very, very dangerous thing to do. But it's because the science is settled, Martin. Well, anyone who studied science... <laughs> knows that, that science is never settled. Just had literally just this alert come up. The latest national chain facing boycotts uh, for selling LGBT onesies for babies is Coles, another one for Pride Month. So I'm actually picking this Pride Month, um, get your popcorn, it's all, it's all going to go off. And again, I want to emphasise, I'm not against lesbians or gays. Never have been. Best friends gay. I've just spoken to the most engaging lesbian woman. This is about the ideology. It is the idea pathogen. It is the infection from guys, kinky, dirty, smutty old men like Michel Foucault have gone and taken those and infested it into the people that actually get hold of our kids for a good chunk of the day. And how many people are out there sitting through DEI rubbish, which is now starting to show up in New Zealand corporations? You know, it's time for us to actually go, you know, you know, speak to the hand, talk to the poor or the claw. We've had enough. From that perspective, or things like you can can check out on Media Matters and Reality Check Radio generally are, are an important reintroduction of the town square. 
Mm, it's, very it's, much so. And I hope that people listening to it uh, understand clearly it's never hateful. It's never dogmatic. The, the interest is in finding the truth. There's a process for arriving at that. And it's not, in my mind, it's simple black and white stuff that's bleached of nuance and where you're good because you've still got that messianic phase going on and everyone else who opposes you is necessarily evil. Trudeau is the best at that. Anyone who opposes him, you, you know, they're uh, rednecks and uh, misogynists and, you know. It's... Yeah. Andrew Doyle's book, The New Puritans, he describes all of that perfectly. Uh, so it's definitely worth checking out. Have you got anything else to finish up on? Going through the newspapers, and it's worth not ignoring this, there are all those horrendous stories about the gang of rapists who operated around Mama Hooch and the other restaurant in Christchurch. I think a lot of people would be absolutely shocked at the length of time that passed while offending was ongoing from the first complaint to these guys actually facing trial, which was uh, like six years or something like that. You know, I think that speaks to this unholy relationship between uh, big government and the small section of humanity that's psychopathic. Mm. Uh, You know, governments, as we said earlier, need boogeymen. And um, I remember hearing uh, someone recounting a researcher looking into the prevalence of uh, the dark triad in indigenous cultures, and they interviewed some Inuit people and uh, they had their little check checklist of, of behavioural traits that psychopaths or sociopaths had, and the Inuit listened intently and said, oh, yes, yes, yeah, we have people like that. And the researcher said, oh, oh, and and how does that behaviour play out? Oh, they uh, pretend they're sick, and then when we go hunting, they try to sleep with our wives. And, uh, and the researcher writing interestedly on his clipbook board said, and and so, you know, how does the tribe deal with people like this? And he said, they said very simply, oh, we um, we take them hunting and throw them in a crevasse. We've not only stopped weeding out our psychopaths, uh, in many ways, modern society empowers them. Oh. And feminism tars all men with the brush of these hideous men who perpetrated these Mm. terrible injustices against these innocent young girls, when really it's better to teach your daughters to look for the signs of, you know, those sort of personality disorders. Whenever I'm talking to a young person who's about to go on an OE, I've found over the years that the one bit of advice I generally give them about travelling is if someone really wants you to do something, chances are it's not in your best interests. Mm, and you can hear advice. that. Oh, come and have a drink, come and have a drink. No one should have to worry about that. They do have to worry about it, which is why my daughter's do three jiu-jitsu classes a week. And uh, I am talking to them about how it's probably not a bad idea if they never, ever drink. Again, it is the, as you said, it's the normalisation of those predators. And those predators have never gone away. They Mm. are as old as time. And here we have a generation of ideologues who unfortunately are in the media and in ruling our country who are telling people like you and I, I mean, according to Rebecca Kitteridge, I'm a domestic terrorist, don't you know? 
you know, mm. white, red haired. I like to do knitting and crafts, trad wife. I have Instagram profiles. Ooh, I have about four of them. Go me. This is what this is what they're going out. This is what the Kate Hannah's Sanjana's of the world are going out and telling people this is what's important. We've got to stop this disinformation. We have to actually shut these people down and shut this dialogue down. And meanwhile, those predators are still out there. They're not being brought to justice anywhere near soon enough. Having excuses made for them. I think I've gone a whole show without a theory, but uh, I've got a theory on this. At the moment, the over the past few years, the biggest threat to our freedom has been stupid women who would exchange it for the illusion of safety and weak, pathetic men who would exchange our freedom for the illusion that those stupid women might sleep with them if they agree with their bullshit hard enough. And as uh, you know, as any good uh, neo-Marxist will tell you, you know, everyone's got an opinions and they're all valid. On that note, thank you as always. Remember too, we have the political panel that rolls around every Friday as well with Paul Brennan and Cam Slater. Uh, Marty and I have both been there. It's a rolling sort of feast. So if you want to catch up with some more political content, do make sure you tune in on that. I think it's around 10 past eight uh, from memory. So that is always loads of fun. So that's still coming up in a couple of days. So that's great news. Yeah, there's but- some great stuff. I was talking to some of the people in the uh, machinery of, of Reality Check Radio and, and saying, you know, we should really have more snippets going out there on Facebook to share because there's some just fantastic programming on there. And it's it, the sheer volume of it means that you necessarily miss a lot of good stuff. But please do share it. If you find it interesting, share it. And, uh, you know, we're not, as I said, we're not hateful people. We want what's best for New Zealand's children and uh, environment and all that stuff. We just don't agree with uh, how people are currently going about getting it. And remember, any discussion is better than no discussion at all. Amen. Well, on that note, Marie, thanks very much again. And same, same back time, same back channel next week. This has been Media Matters with Marie and Marty here on Reality Check Radio. More still to come, including the vocabulary word of the week. Stay tuned here on RCR. Have a great week, everyone. It's time for the vocabulary word of the week. The vocabulary words and phrases that have been hijacked by those who are steeped in the world of critical social justice. So the word to watch out for this week, memory hole. An imaginary place where inconvenient or unpleasant information is put and quickly forgotten. Now, not technically a vocabulary word, but one that is starting to be used more and more often. This term was coined by George Orwell in his novel 1984. Winston Smith's work for the Ministry of Truth required him to get rid of anything that ran afoul of state propaganda. When one knew that any document was due for destruction, or even when one saw a scrap of waste paper lying about it, it was automatically action to lift the flap of the nearest memory hole and drop it in. Today, interestingly enough, memory hole is a term that many who find themselves on the wrong side of the dominant cultural fence observe on a regular basis, whilst those who bathe in the world of critical social justice work in legacy media and pretty much every politician, memory holes are such the norm and they appear at the same regularity as a pothole on New Zealand provincial roads. 
With there now only been a handful of months before the next general election, I suspect we're going to be seeing even more memory holes opening up. Thank goodness there's RCR and we've got you equipped with spades to fill those suckers up. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Keep the feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio. Drop us a text. Send your comment to 2057. Peter Williams is up next here on Reality Check Radio with his insightful commentary and even more great music. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.